Eagles Entertainment. The journey of the draft is driven by AAA. AAA, roadside is their strong side. Make AAA a part of your game day today. AAA, go ahead. With the 21st pick in the NFL Draft, the Philadelphia Eagles select... You're listening to the Journey to the Draft podcast, driven by AAA. Welcome to the Journey to the Draft podcast, driven by AAA. I'm your host, Fran Duffy. We've got another loaded show today. This is going to be a lot of fun. We've got our second round of divisional recaps from the 2020 NFL Draft. Myself and Ben Fennell, we're going to look this week at the teams from the NFC and AFC North. So we'll look at those eight squads, what they did, same kind of structure that we did last week. We'll look through their picks. We'll pick why, you know, trying to explain why they made that selection at the top of their draft. We'll pick a day three sleeper. We'll talk about some over-the-top, you know, kind of themes that we've pulled, not just from this year, but really their team-building philosophy when it comes to the NFL draft. So we'll do that with all eight of those teams. But first, at the very top of the show, really, really excited to welcome into Mr. Relevant this week, Alex Brown, who really is the head of recruiting down at Rice University. And I thought this would be a look, kind of an interesting look at the player evaluation scope because we talk so often on this show about college to the NFL – well, let's talk with a guy that really, you know, his nuts and bolts is all about going from high school to college, but he's got that background from college to the NFL as well. So we'll talk a lot about that with Alex Brown. Really, really excited for you guys to hear that conversation. Hope you enjoyed that one. So we're going to hit on that at the top of the show. We've got the uh, the breakdowns there on the AFC and NFC North. We'll wrap it up with a question from you at home at the end with our draft mailbag. But let's kick things off here. Time for Mr. Relevant with Alex Brown. It's time for Mr. Relevant. So joining us this week on the Journey of the Draft podcast, driven by AAA, a guy that I've known for a long time, and that's Alex Brown, uh, down with the Rice football program. Alex, uh, I don't even want to get into like your title. I want you to set us up here. Uh, take us through uh, your background, how you got to where you are today, your current role with Rice, and uh, really every step along the way. Yeah, man, and... Just, just to let all listeners, I'm a huge fan of your podcast and, and listen to all the different people that talk on the show. So first, it's a, it's a privilege to be able to jump on this with you. But, um, you know, kind of going all the way back to make the, the short story long, um, grew up in Arlington, Texas. So, you know, grew up watching the Cowboys when they were bad. Uh, this was right after, you know, the trio and all the good, the good days, the, the glory days. And, um, you know, a big influence on me growing up was, the Rangers and the Mavericks. So I was like a multi-sport kid, you know, my, my older brother played all sports. My dad played college baseball. So like sports is a big thing for us and seeing young GMs and owners, John Daniels and Mark Cuban, like turn losing programs into winning programs. And then, you know, my dad worked in construction. So like I, I grew up seeing things being built and what, what happened was like, I was like, okay, I want to be able to do this in football and I want to learn the game of football. And I, I really fell in love with football at an early age. Um, Luke Jokel, uh, top five pick. Um, he, he was, uh, his dad was our peewee football coach and we had this dominant team. And my dad, my fourth grade year is like, Hey, do you want to help us out with um, our fantasy football league at work? And I'm thinking, you know, I have no idea what this, what this is. I show up you know, everybody's talking about players in the NFL and I'm like, okay, I'm lost. I'm going to learn this. I'm going to study this. And that's really when it started. So I think at an early age, I knew I wanted to be involved in like team building personnel, started following the draft. 
I knew my, you know, junior year, high school, you're going to know if, if you're a recruit. And I mean, you, you know what you know. And I started my kind of journey at the end of my senior year of high school. I took a scouting course with Russ Landy and John Wooten. Yep. And that set me up to start a website that got me picked up by Optimum Scouting. So I worked with Optimum Scouting and Eric for all throughout college. So I, I did a bunch of different things. And, and my whole focus when I was in college was, okay, I need to use this time period to build up my relationships with different people and network and learn as much as possible to get a baseline foundation to be able to go pro, college, high school coaching. I, I need to be able to keep all my options open and learn as much about football as possible because that's really the, the difference is, you know, it's who you know that and who knows you that, that gets you in the door. But it's what you know and what you're able to bring to the table that's going to keep you in the door. So, um, you know, I, I did some high school coaching, um, worked with Bleacher Report for a couple seasons, did sporting news, did the NFL Network thing over a summer. And, you know, as, as I got more involved in different things, I just knew scouting and, and personnel was the route I wanted to go. And when I got to the end of high school or of college, um, I, I wasn't going to get an opportunity to get a foot in the door because I had no team experience. And uh, the the best move was, yeah, let's go to a school that doesn't have a football program and try to break into the football industry. Right. Um, that wasn't, that, that wasn't going to happen. So I, I made the pivot to say, okay, I need to get in the door. One of these colleges, there's a way more college football programs and recruiting was just taken off. So got involved with USA football because they have, uh, an international bowl where they bring in the best players from us and best players from Canada. They play kind of like a jamboree type deal. And that got me networked with a Houston recruiter, the university of Houston, Dallas Blacklock. Um, I mean, forever, like that's where my career really started is that relationship. And, and it was a course of two years of working with USA football before I really got my chance to work for free at UH. And this is going one year after I graduated college. So, um, it took a long time. It, it took a full four and a half years of committing to learning the scouting game before I even got my chance at Houston. And, you know, it was just the best opportunity for me to, to grow as far as, you know, knowing the game of football, seeing the, the, the inner workings of a college football program. And the timing was amazing because, you know, we had Greg Ward, we had, you know, Will Jackson, we had, you know, Brandon, well, so many different guys that are still in the league now and just great people. Um, Tom Herman was our head coach and got to learn from all those people. And when Tom left for Texas, got the chance to stay in a, in a promoted role with Major Applewhite, um, transitioned into uh, recruiting coordinator for defense, worked with your guy, Mark D'Onofrio uh, from, right. yep. from Temple. Um, so worked with them for two years and getting let go and getting fired was probably the best thing that ever happened to me. When, when we lost to Army and you kind of, as things were transpiring, as a, a lot of things were going on in the program, you, you saw the writing on the wall and I had had different, you know, interviews in the past and I was, I was already kind of wanting to push myself to another level at that point. So I was prepared for it mentally, but it like, it was only a three week time period, but I was able to kind of take a step back, figure out, okay, this is what I liked, what I don't like this is what I want to learn more about. And if I get a chance to do this again, this is, this is going to be my plan. And I finally had the time to like sit down and put it on paper. 
And I live right down the road from Rice University and just drove up there, dropped my stuff off, met with John Simmons, who was the, the uh, chief of staff at the time. And, um, you know, I didn't really think much of it. Just told him, like, hey, I'm looking. I know you don't have a position. And, uh, you know, just, just wanted to kind of touch base and connect. And three weeks after that is when I got the call to return to Houston. So uh, Dana Holgerson actually hired me back to be recruiting coordinator. So then I was re I was back in the saddle, so to speak with a completely new staff. It was me and, you know, one other guy that, uh, he's running, he's the DFO over there. And, uh, you know, it was, it was a great experience to see how they do things at West Virginia. And, um, ultimately, uh, the impression that, that happened with rice before I got rehired at Houston kind of stuck with them. So when their position opened, they reached back out, scheduled up an interview and it just felt right. And mm. the thing that, that is somebody who's won at the Pac-12 level, at the NFL level, and he doesn't, you know, circumvent the, the recruiting process is difficult. And you've, you've been involved with it. You've seen it and you've seen how it's changed. The, the timeline and the calendar is so accelerated that uh, it's easy to get caught up in uh, things that don't really apply to the true evaluation of a kid and the true projection and like, what is he for you? And, uh, so many outside influences, you know, impact that. And I think Coach Bloomberg does a great job of allowing us to be thorough and and use that as a strength and as an advantage to what we do. And the Rice model, I mean, it's the best of both worlds. It's high academics and we're playing big time ball. We're playing the LSU every year, Texas, Arkansas, play USC in a couple of years. So, you know, for me, it was kind of the best of both worlds from uh, recruiting and getting a chance to evaluate and really uh, a head coach that speaks the same language. So it's been a blessing. Uh, I'm, I'm so, so excited about, you know, the opportunity I've, I've been given. And, you know, obviously this is a, a little bit of a difficult time period for everybody, but um, you know, you, you see, uh, you see who gets creative and you, you um, it's, it's great to work for somebody who values their employees. And, and like, I, I really get that with coach Bloom and it's been a great fit. So you talk about, you know, kind of flexing those creative muscles. Uh, I would be remiss if I didn't mention uh, your new podcast, you know, Up Close and Personnel. I've been listening to it uh, really since it dropped, and it is awesome. It's one of my favorite, uh, new favorite podcasts, man. So uh, keep up the great work with that one. And everyone out there that enjoys this podcast and listens to it year-round, I think you'll really enjoy uh, Alex's podcast. So make sure you go subscribe wherever podcast can be found. So take us through now your role at Rice and what you do not necessarily on a day to day, but throughout the course of the year, because I think a lot of people, uh, you know, you talked about it when I was in college football back, you know, my last season was the 2010 season. Your position did not exist. <laughs> Your position yeah. did not exist. There was one signing day. Uh, there was like, you know, it was just, it was a completely different world. Like I was, I was a video guy and I was, you know, putting recruit magnets up on the board. I was helping stack the board. I was going through hours and hours and hours of recruiting film. It's funny um, on Facebook. I had a Facebook memory come across my timeline. Uh, it was like a week ago. And it was like, you know, it just occurred to me that I've gone through uh, 3 million plays in the last, you know, seven months or something like that. And I was like, yep, that, that, that was recruiting days. Like, uh, you know, to me, like the recruiting, the recruiting era has changed so much in college football. So take us through what your role is like throughout the course of the year. Yeah. And, um, I think, uh, it just start, you know, I'm director of recruiting, but the, the way, the way I look at it and, and I've been 
trained up to look at it is the kind of the Ohio State model. Derek Chang is a big mentor of mine. He learned from Mark Pantone. And there's there's two real components of college football recruiting, and that's the recruitment of the athlete and it's the evaluation. And those are two separate things, right? Sure. Um, so in my role, and you know, I'm I'm involved with both sides of it because we have to be a mom and pops operation. I have one assistant director. James Burnett, and he assists in everything from on-campus to operations to really being the the main liaison with academics because that is such a big component. I've got a director of social media and graphics, Alex Giles, who kicks out all the awesome edits that we do, all of the the social media stuff that that we put out on our on our recruiting handles on social and what we how we brand ourselves. That that's a a big component. So we're having those conversations weekly. And then I have a staff of right now, it's two interns that are full-time, Daniel Gain. Um, his uncle was Brian Gain. Okay. And, yep. uh, and he's, he's been awesome. And, and he's, he worked uh, for a training camp with the Eagles. Um, you know, he's, he's been around the game for a long time. And he's a great sounding board and just a hard worker. And then Trey Odom is a guy who worked with me at Houston. And he was a defensive assistant as a student at UH. And it was one of those situations where, um, you know, he's cutting up, you know, and, and tagging plays for the defensive staff to, to go through and evaluate. And I'm setting up NFL scouts as the pro liaison. And we just kind of cross paths a bunch of times. And I'm like, hey, are you, you know, what do you, what do you want to do long term? And he's like, I think I like the scouting stuff. And so as soon as I got the job, I, I knew he was somebody I wanted to bring with me. And, um, you know, I had another intern who just got hired by Auburn to be a GA and that's kind of the, the, the role you have to play in this position is sure. um, not only are you involved with the numbers and tracking scholarships and tracking who you're recruiting and the conversations you're having and identifying more players, but you'd be, rem- you'd be missing the entire field develop people underneath you to, to help you do your job because I can't watch the volume of guys that, that come through our office like I wouldn't be able to do my job if I didn't have guys like, you know, Daniel and Trey and, and Travis. And I think the the best recruiters do the best job of developing their assistants to, Hey, if I'm not in the office and a coach comes by, you got to be able to answer that question. So it's kind of like you're, you're wearing all the hats involved with the player acquisition process. And to your question about how, you know, the role looks throughout the year, it's, it's a 52 week calendar. You know, if, if <laughs> yes, you're not, being intentional with your time, somebody else is. And it's so cliche to be like us, you know, you want to think about, you know, making sure you outwork the next person, but you know, anything that comes up like, uh, you know, end game, you know, we came out with some graphic for that. Uh, the, you know, rise of sky star Wars, like, uh, new albums, like anything that applies to, social media and attention and what kids are looking at, you, you have to be a disruptor in the best way possible to get your, your name out there and your brand out there. And you're selling a program, you're selling a product that you feel like you can help somebody take their game to the next level. And, um, the, the fun part is, you know, I was a business econ major and, uh, I always told myself I'd never get involved in recruiting because I saw the direction it was going <laughs> and, and here we are, you know, uh, you know, 10 years later and, you know, in the thick of it. And it's been really fun because the, the most rewarding part of the relationships you build with the kids. And then once they get on campus, you know, seeing those kids develop and grow and, um, 
it's a player development game. I, I really, I've come to believe that um, it's a coaching and development game. You have to bring in the right people, of course. And I think in the evaluation, the thing that I've learned the most is that you know, the ability to develop and the, the ability to learn and to work hard, that's a trait. And you no got to do your homework on that. And that's why it, it does, it, it, it's repeated constantly by certain guys in the media that do a good job like you and, and Dane Brugler and Daniel Jeremiah, uh, Todd McShay, they're always talking about, you know, the character, the character check and the interviews. And, and a lot of times I, I felt like on the outside looking in when I was younger, it's like, okay, yeah, you know, but you know, as long as he's, you know, good enough or a good enough person, like we can work with it. Cause this guy's way more talented than this player. It doesn't mean anything if you don't get him to the, to the yard. So, um, I, I break it up in a 52 week calendar and, you know, the fourth quarter signing day and fourth quarter moved from February to December. And that's how you got to look at it. So you've obviously, you've seen the game from so many different angles and all the different roles you had in the media. Uh, you know, I, you and I first met uh, down at the senior bowl. Was it like 2012, 2013, one of those years uh, yeah. pretty early on from when I was in Philadelphia. But when you're looking uh, you know, at your role and what you do now, how do you compare it to like what kind of role with, with the league would you compare just to give fans like, uh, and listeners like an idea of like, Oh, okay. Like this is the kind of role that, uh, you know, he would be applicable to in the NFL. I think you have to look at it from the investment standpoint because, mm-hmm. you know, rookie contracts, you can get in and out of them pretty, pretty easily. And there's just not a whole lot tied to them. But when we sign a kid, that's an initial counter. That's an overall counter. Uh, he immediately factors into our APR, into our graduation rate. And that's a $350,000 check. And that doesn't include the time investment and all of those sorts of things and the impact he may have on other teammates. So you really have to look at it as I better uncover every single rock and do my homework because I can't, I can't miss. Like you, you, you say you can't miss and, and you always, you know, there, there are always disappointments and, and, you know, missed evaluations. And that's why you go back and do case studies and figure out, okay, what are we missing on? But I think from the comparing the recruiting process to the evaluation process, I'm, I'm the gatekeeper and I've got to put my name on a kid, no different than an area scout does. And I, I better know our building and I better know our players well enough to understand not just the talent of this recruit, but how he fits into the the spectrum of our team. Because uh, it does no good to say, oh yeah, he's a power five recruit or, oh, he's a first round player. That doesn't mean anything. Like we've changed, like I, I, I really, the, when I first started hearing it, um, it was when, you know, Major Applewhite had a bunch of stuff from the Alabama model and Derek Chang had a bunch of stuff from the Ohio State model. And so I was the recruiting assistant that had to put together the recruiting manual and this, the director of recruiting, Adrian Mays was like, look, I'm trying to get back on the field, put together something. I trust you. Let me see what it looks like. So I got to like really study how these guys were evaluating at different schools, Kansas, when, you know, that Todd recently, they won all those games and beat Virginia tech and Ohio state and Alabama. And the thing that stuck out is like, okay, I need to know if this, is this guy an impact player for us? Is he an immediate starter? Is he a developmental player? Developmental starter, developmental backup? Is he a career backup? Is he a program guy? Like you have to 
be able to assess what the player fits into that position room because and that's, that's a that's gonna, a Belichick that's a Belichick Ozzie Newsome deal that was like formulated back when they were in Cleveland together back in the uh, back in the nineties. Yeah, and and Saban was on the that that's exactly yeah, so yep. and and that really uh, opened opened my eyes to not just how I graded guys and how I evaluated, but um, how I it's it's so you 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 go to practice all the time for for the Eagles, right? You have to post, you know, what four episodes a week during the season. I, I read somewhere like that's that's a lot of work. So so you got to pay attention to how the teams change. The team changes every right. single day, and based on you know academics, is the guy going to qualify uh, in the weight room? Is he is he hurt? Um, you know, uh, how's he picking up the playbook during during fall camp? Those are all factors that you could miss out if you're just if you're just living in, in, in the, the mindset of, okay, I'm going to, I'm in recruiting, I'm watching recruits. I'm going to find the best recruits and bring them to the table. Or if you're a scout, I'm going to find the best players and I'm just going to bring, you got to understand your team before you can ever evaluate anybody else because you're going to know what the needs are. And I think that's the, that would probably be the main difference is that area scouts don't have the ability to be in house and, and see that. But I think that's where recruiting is very similar to, the, the pro scouting side where you have to, you know, keep a pulse on your team and you're doing a lot of workouts when, when it comes to camps and when you're going out in spring recruiting and you have to be able to kind of merge the two together. So, um, that was a really long winded way of answering your question. It was an, it was an awesome answer though. And let me ask you this. So, uh, I ask everybody in this series, like, um, you know, the beginning of their evaluation process, they're sitting down, they're getting ready to watch a guy, uh, typically from college to the NFL for the first time. How do they pick games? Now I'll come and get this from a complete position of ignorance because like I said, the recruiting game has changed a lot in the last decade. So, uh, before when I was at, when I was at Temple, we didn't have the ability to really choose games. Like typically more often than not kids sent in, you know, two, three games tops. And we, that, those were the game tapes that we had. We didn't have the, the uh, ability to access an entire season's worth. I don't know if that's changed or not. So I'm going to ask you uh, anyway, when you're getting ready to sit down and watch a kid, if you've got the ability to, you know, to look at a, a bunch of games, how do you decide what to watch and, and, you know, sit down and say, all right, this is how I'm going to get started on this kid. It's, it changed right when I got in. Like, like <laughs> I, I was so blessed. Uh, God, God bless Huddle. And you know what's cool? Uh, Coach Bloomberg like was like an angel investor with them. So like he he knows all of them. Like we got to meet all the people that were like the starters of it. So nice. It's it's awesome. Uh, I start with okay. So if you got to look at it from uh, different scenarios. Okay. So if you're dealing with a kid that's coming from a bigger school or that they regularly play good talent. So, um, you have to understand level of competition. It's so important. Like if the kids at a big school, I'm going to watch the last three games. I want to watch playoff games. I want to see if, if he's, you know, in the state game, what does he look like? Um, and then you, you find out, okay, why didn't he play in this game? Then you kind of do some homework, figure out he's hurt. Okay. Then you go to the game log and okay, I'll pick out two more games. But for me, I always want to watch at least three games and, Three games, I feel like, gives you a shot to give me your DNA of who you are and, and what what you put out on tape. Um, so I like to go last three, and sometimes I'll peek at the first game just to see what the difference is. 
right? Yep. I don't, I don't have the bandwidth to go uh, ideally. And this is what we do in season. And, and I do have a chance to do this with our commits early in the process with our 2021. Um, my interns, the, the guys do a phenomenal job of breaking up every single guy that's on our board commits and targets. I do the commits personally. Like I want to cut them up. I want to watch every single play so that when I talk to the staff every week, this is what they're doing. But when it comes to the younger guys, we've, we've built up this process where we've got cutups from junior early season. So it's game, it's uh, the preseason. So their scrimmage tape through like game four and then games five through seven is mid season. And then games eight through, uh, you know, 10 or 11 is late season. And then we have playoffs. So I can literally at the end of the season, I can go in and watch a cut up of early season mid-season, late season, and playoffs, and really see how a guy grows and develops. And that's where having the right guys around you really makes your job great. Like, and, that's, and that's when you can really kind of get into a groove. Right now is hard because there's no new information, right? And uh, not able to find any new games. It's about, you know, really diving into the relationships. But yeah, that's how I pick my games. And then for the other the other side of it for small school kids. Um, I want to find the best three games. I don't care where it is. I don't care if it's the first three games in non-district. Um, I, I'm going to find the best games. So you put every game of your, is it your targets or your commits into your, into like the video system. It's all digitized. I'm going to sound like a dinosaur. Here. It's all digitized. Yeah, no, you are a dinosaur. It's okay. Um, no, you got, you got, you got two pod, you got two podcasts. So you're not a complete dinosaur. You're like the velociraptor. Dude. So uh, when, when I, when so, I was at Temple, uh, right, when I, we were, what? we were, we were still working, like uh, we would get VHS tapes from team, from schools and DVDs. And we didn't have the bandwidth. We like, we didn't have the server space. And I was the one in charge of the server space. We didn't have the server space to be able to load up all of that college or the high school footage because we were filled up with everybody that we were playing our opponents, our own stuff, practice. We'd go back like two or three years. So we didn't really have that ability. So it was like, the second or third year I was there, I was, it was spring, it was May, you know, so we're starting our recruiting for the next cycle. Uh, again, different than where it is now. Cause I know you start that position a little bit earlier, but uh, I was like, guys, why don't we put all of this high school film, at least the guys that we're going to watch, let's, let's get this into the server. Let's get this into the server. And then team, you know, coaches can watch it at the desk. I don't want to tell you how many times I'd stack multiple VCRs on top of each other. And I'd be like copying plays from one to the next, trying to make a tape of a guy to get off to coach D'Onofrio or to our offensive coordinator or to our linebackers coach. Uh, so you having it all digitized there, very, very jealous. It definitely makes it a little bit easier. They're, they're, they're playlists. It's, it's beautiful. So. <laughs> all right. So uh, my next question for you is this. Okay. So, um, you know, I, I like to ask everybody what they feel are their biggest strengths as an evaluator. And then the weaknesses they have, how do you try and improve on those weaknesses, you know, year over year? Yeah. Um, you, you, you kind of cued me up the other day with this and it's hard to, to say like what your strengths are as an evaluator, because I, I really feel like if you're doing it right, it's, it's about two things. And I, I feel like I'm at a place in my life where I've, I've really worked hard at these two things. And that's what are my film watching habits? And am I a volume shooter? Like, and when I say a volume shooter, I mean like, I got to be watching tape every single day. And that's not just 
you know, a recruits tape, like that's CUSA tape. Like what, what I've done this year is tried, like, I felt like a weakness for me last year was that coming from the AAC, the American athletic conference, I'd been around that conference for four years. I knew exactly what type of guy Tulsa goes after Memphis goes after, you know, all these different teams in our conference that we look at as our competitors. Um, you got to know what they look for to know how to beat them, right? Like it's the same way with the NFL. Like you're, you're, you really got to evaluate your division more so than any other, other group of teams and to know how to win that division. Cause that's the first step into winning championships. Uh, so for me, like, I was like, okay, man, I'm really critical of these guys. Cause I stepped into the building April of 2019. This is right when you're hitting the road and you know, coaches bring you a player and I'm like, ah, I don't like this guy that much. And you realize like it's a different, it's a different conference, different things win here. And like you go into the season and you see some of the teams, you're like, okay, okay, I got it. Like you get a feel for the body types, you get a feel for the type of athletes. And now I'm able to use this time. It's been beautiful. Like I can just pull up Thundercloud and just watch top five receivers. It's queued up with pro football focus. And I'm not even trying to give them a shout out here, but like, it just makes life so easy. And I'm able to watch two or three conference USA receivers. I'm not trying to watch every single guy, but what I am trying to do is, okay, who are the guys at the top of the league? And now I'm going to go watch some recruits. And that helps me understand, okay, this, this recruit maybe doesn't stack up great on our board, but at the end of the day, he's a potentially above the line guy for us. So I definitely need to at least add them to the database. And I think having context is a constantly changing thing. And that's something you can always work on. And for me, I would say that's probably the biggest thing that that you have to constantly work on is um, a context of not just like talent level, but um, what you're doing as an offense, like our offense changed on the last three games of the season, what we won. Um, so understanding what that means for what we're looking for. Um, and I think when, when it comes down to like, what was my weakness, it, it was, it was definitely uh, digging into the character. And it's not that I, I wasn't a good evaluator of character, but I think it's, it's a skill that you have to train that, that muscle to not just be a robot and go through the robot and go through the motions of, Hey, is he, you know, does he show up on time? You know, does he work hard? Does he have good grades? Like, no, like you need to be curious and like ask questions that kind of dig at the heart of who the person is. And, um, secretly that's, it's a big thing. That's that, that podcast has really helped me with is learning how to interview people. And I think that is a huge component of scouting. And I think if you don't understand that you're missing the boat entirely because it's no different than a business, um, hiring an employee, right? Like you could have the best sales numbers in the world, but if you're a tail, terrible person, or maybe you're not a terrible person, but you're, you're manipulative or you have some component of you that won't vibe with the office. It doesn't matter how good that person is. No question. It's not, yep. it's not, it's not going to work. So I think, I think that's what my, my strengths are definitely the, the habit of how I set things up, um, documenting my notes, I mean, I got a million notebooks. Um, I, I've gotten to the point where I know what I'm looking for at different positions. You know, from uh, you know, from the critical factors to the position specifics to how I take the notes. And I just need a piece of paper and a pen. 
Uh, ideally, I have one note up and I'm ready to rip and roll. But I think you have to have a habit of doing it daily. And the way you do it is kind of overlooked because there's so many distractions. Like I'm picking up my phone right now to all the listeners out there. Like your your phone's blowing up all day long. You've got to, you know, you've got to set aside time to really uh, have that deep focus in that flow state. Uh, so a couple of things there. I, number one, you're a thousand percent. We, we've talked about that on this show about it's just like any other business. And I think every listener, no matter what area that you work in, whether, whatever, no matter what your profession is, you know of a situation or you know somebody who didn't get a job or you know someone who didn't hire somebody because you know what? They just, they just rubbed me the wrong way. You know, I did, I didn't, I didn't come away liking that person. Uh, and that happens. That happens in every single walk of life. So a hundred percent, the character absolutely matters from that end of it. And then too, I love what you said too, in the very beginning of that, about, you know, what you do in terms of watching all the best players in the conference at, at a specific position. And then, all right, now I'm going to go back and watch some of these guys from the high school level, because this is that time of year. There are a lot of people that go out and say this, you know, but a lot of NFL scouts now, are doing exactly that. You know, the college scouts will go, and now, okay, it's time for me to watch uh, all the top players. That, you know, I'll watch the top five, top seven, top ten players at every position in the league just to kind of reboot the memory banks in terms of, oh, all right, this is this is what it looks like. This is what's working in the league right now. So, uh, you know, sir, that's, a, that's something that carries over uh, to the NFL game as well. So, uh, all right, my, my next question for you is this. What are some things that – are not, I want to say specific to that only you do, but you know, that you feel, you know, this is kind of the way I look at it that I know is a little bit different than what most people do, because I'm a big believer that everybody's a product of their own experiences. So uh, all the people that have influenced you, you know, you've gotten to where you are right now. What are some of the things that maybe you look for in players or, you know, in, when you're trying to watch guys and evaluate guys that stand out most to you based off of, you know, just how you've been trained? What are some things based on that I look for when I'm watching a kid? Yeah, exactly. I'm just like, like, cause, cause like, I, I think, I think it all matters. Like, and, and I, I say that I, I don't mean it in, in a, in jest. It's kind of like, I think the, the hard part for the consumer of the draft is to understand that like, you know, everybody wants to be able to watch one game of a, of a recruit or a prospect <laughs> And then be able to, okay, yeah, it's a first round pick. And I think from my own personal experience, from doing the draft and, and covering it, and you know, I, I think it goes back to you have to have a, a Rolodex of of guys to look at to understand the big picture and not get lost, you know, lose the forest and the trees. Um, yeah, you know, I think for me, it's it's been, you know, I, I want to look at all the data points. I don't know if that, that really answers your question, but I, I really feel like there's, there's not one thing I look for. It's all of it considered. And, and I don't, I don't know if that's a great answer to, for you, but I mean, for me, like, I, I feel like there's no shortcut. There's no shortcut to getting the right evaluation on a kid. There's no shortcut to finding the right recruit to sign. I, I think it all takes time. And um, that's the, the beauty and, and the, the difficulty of it all, you know? Sure. Let me ask this. You've seen this now, especially seeing the NFL draft process through your eyes. Cause I know, you know, you've talked with some of these guys that have gone through it. Uh, you know, guys that have gone through it. Is there a part of it that you feel, you know, having been through it on the media side and, and watching it from the fan side that you feel is overrated or now underrated based off of uh, your experiences? 
You know, I, I would say the the team meetings with players in the draft process get so overblown. Ooh, uh, oh, like in terms of of who's meeting with oh, who? Oh yeah, like, uh, like 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 we would be at the Senior Bowl, and you and me would be you know on the sideline watching indie drills, and you know we always go up to you know watch team, and as soon as team's over, all the media guys are you know rushing the field and like trying to get interviews with people, and then you have the other media guys that are kind of like. Oh, so the Seattle Seahawks just met with Josh Allen. Seahawks are looking at trading up and getting Josh Allen. It's like, no, they're, they're doing their their they're due doing diligence. their job. <laughs> like they have ten people or however many people are working for them, and and they have to meet with the position groups that they're assigned. And and it's so funny to me, especially the combine too, like the yep. meetings at the combine and then the invites to oh. the facility and. Yep. And, and and everybody wants to just get caught up and try to, you know, okay, well, this happens, so this means that they're going to take them. And that's what I'm going to do with my mock draft. And, and mock drafts are so different than that. It's like, just pick the best players that you think should go in the first round that fit the team's mold. And, uh, I think that's the most that's the most overblown thing. It's like Dude, people are, are doing their due diligence. We, I, I get so like visibly annoyed and perturbed when I'm at the combine and I'm trying to buzz around the room and get quotes from guys and talk to as many players as possible. And I get my time wasted because, you know, a reporter says, Hey, have you met with the, the Packers yet? Hey, have you met with the Seahawks yet? Oh, who did you meet with? Was it a formal or informal? It's like, Oh my God. Like I know, and look, there's reasons why they do it, but it hundred percent agree. That part is so overblown because all these teams, that's what they're there for. They're there to meet with these guys. They're trying to meet and talk with all every player uh, in the draft in some way, shape or form. It's just going to take uh, a different form depending on the, on the player. But uh, I'm so glad you said that. Um, all right. Is there an underrated part, a player, that, a, a part of it that you're like, man, like this, this should get a little bit more pub. Yeah. I, I would have said the, the interview process at the combine and, and when they put them through the boiler room, but yep. that, what's been really cool about, I really feel like it started last draft. I mean, every team, like the Colts, the Colts, the Bills, um, you know, different teams out there are doing a great job of like kind of, you know, lowering their guard and like saying, Hey, this is what goes on behind the scenes. And, and if you just pull up YouTube and just search, you know, NFL draft and just watch these, these docu-series that the teams are putting out, it's awesome because you get to see, you know, what they're, the questions they're asking and, um, you know, Hey, what's the hardest thing you've dealt with in your life? You know, what's the most adversity you've faced? Um, give me one example of how you show leadership in the off season. And I, I think that's, that's huge because then that really separates um, separate. That's the final separator for, for teams. And I, I would say that side of it. And then on the front end the thing that probably doesn't get talked about them enough is like the role of Blesto and NFS in setting the, the table and those guys that are going out on the road during pro days and getting junior information to present to owners, um, that really kind of sets the bar for where guys go and the adjustments happen after that. But a lot of it's kind of de de determined based on that initial evaluation. And um, I think not, not enough, you know, credence is put towards that because junior film does kind of apply. It's not the end all be all, but it definitely gets you on teams radar. 
Yeah, it's a process that's going to be a little bit different this year because uh, of COVID-19, those pro days, uh, you know, not happening for the most part around the country. Uh, we'll see how, how that's ultimately affected. It's a, a really good point. Last question for you, then we're going to get you out of here. Best advice uh, that you would give to uh, Alex Brown from, you know, we'll say uh, 15 years ago or somebody that you know, maybe they, they don't even want to get into scouting, but they say, hey, you know what, I just want to be a better fan. I want to be a smarter fan. Uh, what, would you, what, what advice would you give uh, to those people out there? So you, we talked before the show and you listened to the podcast and I had Yogi, Yogi Roth on. He was phenomenal. He was phenomenal and he, he's awesome dude. And his thing was, you've got to be a seeker and by being a seeker, like go just, they got a thing called Google. They got a thing called YouTube. Go and search all this stuff. It's out there. Somebody's got the content out there. Um, I mean, you could pull up inside zone. You could pull up quarterback fundamentals coverage concepts, cornerback leverage, um, you know, different people are, are posting content daily because everybody loves this game. I think what helped me so much in college was like, I felt like I was getting paid to go to school with my scholarship, but that I was going to school for football sure. because every day I got home, I was, I was watching some, you know, the Alabama LSU game, you know, rewatching on my DVR and I bought three different DVRs. I had four in the house and every single TV was recording three games every single time slot. And I think if you want to be good at something, you've got to get a baseline foundation to work off of. And for me, uh, you know, I played receiver, played linebacker. So I knew those positions, but um, I didn't know quarterback mechanics. Like I, I needed to, I was more of a baseball guy. So I was like, okay, I'm going to deconstruct myself and figure out how, if I was going to teach somebody how to throw, where would I start? And so like, that was kind of the, the, the genesis, I guess. And then like every single year I was trying to add on pieces of, okay, I need to know every single technique from a fundamental standpoint and how different people coach it. Now I'm going to progress to schemes. Now I'm going to progress to team construction. I think if you start at the, the granular level and really like learn the game of football and then focus on players, I think you can do a better job of noticing patterns. And I think that's where, you know, you don't want to just regurgitate information as a fan. You want to be able to make your own assessments and you're not going to be able to do that unless you have a foundation to, to work off of. And that's my, my advice. That's uh, outstanding advice. Uh, Alex, dude, this has been awesome. Really, really appreciate you stopping by here on the Journey to the Draft podcast, driven by AAA. Again, go check out Alex's podcast, uh, Up Close and Personnel, wherever podcasts can be found. Alex, we'll talk to you again soon, my man. Thanks, man. Now it's time for Draft Buzz. Well, back again for another segment of Draft Buzz here. Where we're going to look at a couple of divisions. We're going to do the NFC North and the AFC North. Back to, in the show is our friend Ben Fennel. Ben, uh, welcome back to the Journey of the Draft podcast. It's always great to join you. Again, in this kind of weird time between the drafts here in the summer, we're not quite turning the page to the 2021 board just yet. Still kind of looking back, but there's a lot to break down. Have you started watching anything yet for 2021? Oh, of course, Fran. We're in middle of May. It's almost June. I got 400 <laughs> guys on my, my database. No, I'm not talking about the database. I'm talking about, like, have you, like, watched film on anything? Have you, like, written anything up on any of these guys? No, yet? it's a lot of notes and backgrounds and stuff. I've yeah. dabbled just a little bit, just peeking, and then I kind of, like, almost get scared. Like, ooh, I'm not ready for that yet. <laughs> I'm not ready for the full Trevor Lawrence right. dive just yet. But, uh, yeah, I dabbled here and there on some names, getting buzz and 
a few guys I'm not familiar with. Maybe I just buzzed through a game or their highlights just to figure out what the what the buzz and all the uh, the, the hoopla is about. So haven't haven't dug, dug into the film too uh, extensively just yet. So I will say this before we get going on the uh, the Detroit Lions. Uh, in a couple weeks, you and I are going to be doing a look back at the. I believe the 2016 NFL draft and just kind of taking the big takeaways like for our personal evaluations and talking about player development and things like that. So uh, for all of you out there listening, after we get through these division recaps, we've got some cool ideas for episodes here uh, in the coming weeks. So, all right, let's get through uh, the the NFC North here. We're going to start with the Detroit Lions. And uh, they had the third overall pick in this draft. We're going to quickly run through their selections. Obviously, they kicked things off with the Ohio State cornerback. Jeff Akuda, DeAndre Swift, the running back from Georgia in the second round. Third round, they go defensive end. Julian Aquara out of Notre Dame. Another third round pick, they go with Ohio State guard Jonah Jackson. And they pick another guard, uh, Logan Stenberg from Kentucky early in the fourth round. Fifth round, they had a couple of selections there. Wisconsin wide receiver Quintez Cephas. And then New Mexico State running back Jason Huntley. Sixth round, John Pettisini, the defensive tackle from Utah. And then Jashan Cornell rounded out their draft, the offensive tackle from Ohio State. So, Ben, as we get into this now, let's look at their top pick. We talk about uh, Jeffrey Akuda going to the Detroit Lions. And your thoughts, well, why was Jeffrey Akuda the pick over, you know, there was a lot of talk that it could have been uh, uh, Derek Brown, could have been Isaiah Simmons. Ultimately, why do you feel that the pick was Jeffrey Akuda? Well, this guy looks like he was made in a press man Petri dish, like I've been saying all season long. He's got the length, the size, the physicality, the speed, the production, playing Ohio State, all that press man experience. We know New England likes, you know, kind of a uh, Rolodex defensive scheme, but you got to be able to play press man to play for Matt Patricia and now new defensive coordinator Corey Unlin coming over from the Philadelphia Eagles. Yep. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um but you just need to be able to cover, especially in today's climate in the NFL. And that's kind of been the weak link in the Detroit Lions over the past 10 to 15 years to really make it a big picture. I, we th- I thought we studied them pretty intently last year, Fran, and we thought they really turned the page with their press man ability. But some moving parts on the back end, they brought in Tracy Walker. That was a good move. And Justin Coleman. But Darius Slay's on the way out. So you have to figure out what you're doing at the cornerback position. They got Jeffrey Akuda with that top pick in the first round. They also got Desmond Trufant in free agency. So two new parts there on each island uh, at the cornerback position for the Detroit Lions. But first and foremost, you better have some big physical corners to cover in the NFC North because, you know, Aaron Rodgers is going to be throwing that ball, you know, 40, 50 times a game. you got to be able to cover. Uh, I think, you know, to me, Jeffrey Kuda was my number one overall player uh, in this draft. Just, you know, position agnostic. Uh, to me, I thought he was the best player in the draft. So well-rounded. I, I think that he was a great – he's a great fit there for what they're going to ask him to do. Uh, certainly a player that uh, – is he going to be Darius Slay on day one? No. But I do think that he's going to come in and long-term uh, be a really, really good player for that defense. Um, now let's go to day three standout. Favorite pick here from day three. I'm going to throw mine in first. To me, it's the first one. I really like the, the selection of Logan Stenberg there uh, in the fourth round. Look, to me, my questions with Stenberg were his athleticism, uh, you know, his ability to kind of hold up. I don't say in an island, but you don't have that too often uh, as an offensive guard. But I still think you need to be able to hold up, you know, athletically against some of the you know more dynamic interior disruptors along NFL defensive lines. But to me, when you look at Stenberg, this guy's a four-year starter in the SEC, has never missed a down. He's tough. He's physical. He's nasty. He's smart. Uh, he's technically sound. To me, I, th- I think he kind of fits, especially when you talk about the way that they want to play. 
offensively, you know, with some of the backs that they've got uh, on that roster, just knowing, uh, the, you know, what I know about that offensive staff, the way they want to play, I think Stenberg kind of fits the, that, that vision. Yeah, I think he was voted the nastiest player at the SEC Media Day last summer, if I'm not mistaken. A uh, really nasty finisher. I really think Logan Stenberg in the fourth round and Jonah Jackson in the third round will be the starting guards for the Detroit Lions Ooh. in 2020. I know they have a couple of vets there. Odey Abushi is a really good hired gun that could step in if you need to. But I think Stenberg and Jonah Jackson are going to be your left and right guards for 2020. But continuing with that running back position, they took this kid in the fifth round, Jason Huntley, that didn't have a whole lot of buzz coming into the draft but the guys that watched his tape really intriguing player out of the backfield led all running backs in this class with receptions 134 career receptions out of the backfield out of New Mexico State he was a 500 500 guy in 2018 the team just wasn't as competitive in 2019 despite playing some pretty good opponents they played Alabama Washington State Ole Miss but he's a small back he's 5'8 180 and he's that perfect third down back to kind of take over that previous role uh, from Theo Riddick to throw the ball to the backfield on third down they have Carrion Johnson a little bit more of a Bell Cal bulldozer between the tackles back. DeAndre Swift, I just absolutely gush about. I don't think there's anything he can't do on the NFL field, but Jason Huntley is really that mold of a scat back that can contribute in the pass game. Yeah, Huntley was one of the rare players that was able to get a pro day this year and did get a lot of buzz off of that pro day. A lot of teams showed interest in him, uh, you know, in that month leading up to the NFL draft. Um, I like the, the John Pettisini selection as well. We know that they like versatile pieces in that defensive front seven, right? Guys that can line up at different techniques, different positions, do a lot of different things. Pettisini's not that, but in that defense, they always want that gap plucker on the inside, right? Guys that can come in, play the zero, play the one, and on rundowns, be really, really stout at the point of attack and, and hold up double teams, keep linebackers free. And I think Pennicini, uh certainly can be that guy. Over-the-top takeaways for me, uh, looking at this Detroit Lions team, you know, you look in the past here, every first-round pick under Bob Quinn, you know, the, the general manager there who comes from New England, all of these guys have been alpha males. They've been captains. They've been culture setters. And I think certainly when you look at uh, Jeffrey Akuda, he certainly fits that bill, right? He, he's known as that kind of culture changer type of pl- uh, player uh, coming from Ohio State. Even though he was a one-year starter, he was a, just a dude there uh, in the back end. You look at TJ Hawkinson. He was only a redshirt sophomore in Iowa, but was known as that kind of presence in the locker room. Frank Ragnow at Arkansas. Jared Davis at Florida had extremely high marks from a character standpoint. Taylor Decker was a two-time captain at Ohio State as well. So, you know, to me, a little bit of a trend that has formed there with Bob Quinn, right, in terms of the first-round picks. You know, a lot of these guys that kind of fit that personality, fit that culture-setting, uh, you know, temperament that they're, that they're looking for. Uh, to me, that was one big one. And then uh, I'll tell you what, our friend Dane Brugler was all over the running back selection there in round two for the Detroit Lions, and he pegged that one very early. I believe he said that on, on his podcast, Pro, Pro, uh, Prospect of Pros, uh, back in, I think it was January that, uh, you know, the, hey, look for the Lions. They're really looking at running back in round two. Um, and he nailed it. DJ DeAndre Swift ends up going to the Lions there. So uh, a big pull there from Dane. How about let, let's wrap these guys up. Uh, an undrafted sleeper, Ben. Give me, I'll let you go first here. Who's a name to watch here this summer? 
Well, I feel like this was pretty easy, and I think it's a great complementative part for their offense. They were obviously making a big stride last offseason to get bigger and tougher and more traditional, particularly at the tight end position. They went and got Jesse James in free agency, drafted TJ Hawkinson in the first round, even took Isaac Nauta in the seventh round from Georgia. But then they went and got Hunter Bryant as an undrafted free agent. was one of the more exciting upside matchup pieces in this draft and kind of a down tight end year. He slipped all the way out of the draft mostly because of those injury concerns that he's dealt with most of his college career up there at the University of Washington. But when he was healthy, Fran, easily the most explosive player on the field, ability to make plays. He's a matchup nightmare. You line up against a safety or linebacker. You could see the speed, the vertical element. He's great after the catch. It reminded me when he's healthy and at his best, he looks like an Evan Ingram, a Trey Burton, an Aaron Hernandez but he just didn't test like that. Obviously, Evan Ingram ran in the 4-4s, and Hunter Bryant runs in the 4-7s. On top of the injury concerns, that pushed him all the way out of the draft. But I think that's a really nice part to mix in with the traditional tight ends they already have there. I mentioned Jesse James and TJ Hawkinson. That's a team, too. I talk about trends with Bob Quinn. Uh, you know, you look back at some of the guys that he's also taken uh, You know, over the course of his career as a general manager. They've taken guys that – you know, maybe didn't test as well as people thought that they would. Uh, you know, you look at Tease Tabor, uh, Ashawn Robinson certainly fit into that mold. Jelani Tavai didn't quite test quite as well uh, as people thought. So, um, you know, there's just another little bit of a theme there. And I think that, uh, you know, when you talk about Hunter Bryant, he certainly fits that mold. I thought he was going to test a lot better than he did out in Indianapolis this spring. But, um, no, that's a good one. He was a, certainly a name I was going to bring up. Another one I'll bring up, too, uh, Jalen Elliott, the safety from Notre Dame. Big body kid. Remember, when you're talking about the way that they play, that's a primarily man coverage team. I think when you look at Jalen Elliott with his size, his wingspan, he's a guy that in theory could be a tight end matchup guy. He had really high marks from scouts coming into the season. Uh, I know that you know a couple of the committees had him rated very, very highly. I never quite saw that. Um, but I think when you talk about you know his physicality, I think he won uh, defensive back of the week down at the Senior Bowl uh, for his side. So you know you talk about a guy that. Uh, you know, very well-respected player. He's been a, a, a two- or three-year starter uh, for the Fighting Irish. But with his wingspan, certainly could be someone that could match up on tight ends to the next level if he's able to make it. So uh, we'll put the Detroit Lions to bed. Let's now go to a team that had two first-round picks, the Minnesota Vikings. And we'll just quickly run through those picks. They had a boatload of selections in this draft. Uh, the two first-round picks, LSU wide receiver Justin Jefferson at 22, and then TCU corner Jeff Gladney at 31. In the second round, they get the Boise State left tackle Ezra Cleveland. Round three, they go corner Cam Dantzler from Mississippi State. Trifecta of fourth-round picks. You get the South Carolina edge rusher DJ Wanham, Baylor defensive tackle, an All-American here, and James Lynch at D-tackle, and then Troy Dye, very, very productive linebacker, four-year starter uh, for Oregon. Two fifth-round picks, Temple Corner, Harrison Hand, and then K.J. Osborne, the wide receiver from Miami, a transfer from Buffalo. Uh, two sixth-round picks, Blake Brendel at guard, Josh Metalis at uh, safety, the kid from Michigan who was down at the Senior Bowl, and then four seventh-round picks. ton of selections here for this team. Hmm. Kenny Willickis, the defensive end from Michigan State, Nate Stanley, the quarterback from Iowa, Brian Cole, the safety uh, from Mississippi State, and then Kyle Hinton, the small school kid, a guard, from Washburn. So let's get back uh, to these top picks here, Ben. Uh, I'll let you pick if you want to go Jefferson or Gladney. Why do you feel that those guys were the selection? 
I really like what the Vikings did in this draft ran tons of talent, especially on the defensive side of the ball late in the draft. But Justin Jefferson seemed to be that pick to replace Stefan Diggs that people kind of forgot was gone. And uh, this offseason, a pair with Adam Thielen, they're still looking to throw the ball uh, in the Gary Kubiak system there. They want to run the ball and work the play action and they need receivers to get themselves open. Justin Jefferson. He's as good as it gets in the slot in college football. It's interesting to see where they're going to play him in the NFL. He didn't line up a whole lot outside the numbers at LSU. They like a lot of two-receiver sets with the Vikings. That typically means Thielen's on one side, Diggs is on the other side. So it's interesting to see if Jefferson's going to be a true slot receiver in Kubiak's offense or if he can handle the outside the numbers kind of wear and tear with the size and the speed uh, requirements, but he's shown the ability to win, get himself open, strong hands, can win over the middle of the field, pretty aggressive yak after the catch. And I think we saw the prolific offense that LSU put up last year on their way to the national championship game. But Justin Jefferson, to get him in round one, on top of then going to get Jeff Gladney later in round one, that's just a great one-two punch right there, in my opinion, to, to settle receiver in a cornerback position, which seems to be a little bit of a change in the guard there with Trey Waynes on his way out, Xavier Rhodes on his way out. So you're going to need some new bodies out there, and Jeff Gladney seems like he's got one of those spots. Yeah, and to me, when you look at Jeff Gladney, uh, you know, you talk about some of these big corners that are coming out, and people kind of always say, oh, Mike Zimmer, he likes size, length. You know, you think Drake Kirkpatrick when he was out in Cincinnati, certainly Xavier Rhodes and Trey Waynes. But then you look over the last couple of years, and they take, uh, they take Mike Hughes, the corner out of UCF. He's on the smaller side. They took Mackenzie Alexander, the corner from Clemson in the second round. He was on the smaller side. Uh, and Jeff Gladney on the smaller side. But the thing with all three of those guys, even though they were smaller, all of them were really hyper-competitive. So Gladney, to me, made a lot of sense uh, from a schematic fit and a personality fit for that defense. So uh, that certainly made a lot of sense to me. Uh, let's go to the day three standout here. A lot of them. Oh, what was your, uh, your favorite pick here uh, on day three for the Vikings? Oh, man, pick any of these guys on the defensive side of the ball, whether it's Troy Dye, that linebacker who's athletic, good coverage skills, Kenny Willekes, defensive end, just seems like he'd do anything you need him to do. Uh, with his effort and motor, rushing the passer, playing the run. He doesn't have to come off the field. Brian Cole, the second, the former four-star receiver out of the University of Michigan, transitioned to the defensive side of the ball, played nickel at Mississippi State. Really interesting player. Josh Medalist, Harrison Hand at a temple. Really interesting group of players, particularly on the defensive side of the ball. And amazing, I could run off four, five, six players and not mention DJ Wano or not mention James Lynch. Tons of players here, friend. Oh, good, because I, I want to talk about DJ Wadham and James Lynch. <laughs> so yeah, to me, look, look, one of the reasons why we're doing our recaps this way uh, is that, you know, when fans, as, as they're talking about, you know, even if they're not putting together mock drafts, if, but even if they're just thinking about the draft, they're thinking about team building, if they're thinking about whatever team they're a fan of, don't just say, okay, my team needs an, a defensive end or my team needs a corner. Who's the top corner? Okay, let's plug him in. It, it doesn't work that way. All these teams have identities with the way that they play. You watch them on film. You get a sense of how they like to use their personnel. And I think when you look at those two defensive linemen, right, you look at DJ Wanham, you look at James Lynch, what do we talk about with, with Minnesota all the time? That versatility, right? All the guys that they, you know, that they'll come in, they'll line up Everson Griffin inside, they'll line them up outside. They'll go with those speed packages and throw four or five defensive ends all at one time against quarterbacks. You like length along the defensive line. So you look at DJ Wanham, one of his biggest strengths 
is this kid's wingspan. He's like a pterodactyl out there coming off the edge. <laughs> when you look at the way that he's built, he fits perfectly for what Mike Zimmer's trying to build. You look at James Lynch, this is a guy that's got that inside-outside versatility, high motor. He comes in and he fits that mold of what the, the way that they play, right? All those guys, all these teams, these coaches, the guys that are well-established have identities, and you kind of know the personality of that team. And I think when you look at Wadham, you look at Lynch, they both fit the Minnesota Vikings. They both fit Mike Zimmer. And I, to me, uh, those two picks to start things off there uh, in the fourth round make a ton And Fran, just to address the defense the way they did and the fact that they didn't break the bank in free agency, which seems like everybody, competitive teams, you want to go add some parts. They added Michael Pierce, but they really trusted the draft depth. And that was really it they did in free agency. They had no problem saying goodbye to Stefan Diggs, lost a couple other parts here and there, and Trey Waynes and Rhodes, and Everson Griffin is still out there. But just looking at their depth chart now, man, this is how you retool a competitive team with young talent. Just looking at all these players, all the talent, all the upside, they're not all going to hit Fran, but some of them are. And I just see a couple studs mix into this roster that is no man if they hit with Cameron Dantzler or if Brian Cole ends up being a good nickel player or if Troy Dye could be a third down linebacker what if Kenny Willekes could be just a great sub rusher and walk into 10 sacks you know for uh, the Minnesota Vikings there's a lot of intriguing talent that I could just see excelling if they get the opportunity well, and to me, this is a team, and talk about over-the-top takeaways. You know, I talked about it, you know, all these teams have types, and, that, and that's certainly one. But uh, to me, this is a team, you know, with Rick Spielman, they're, they're an analytically driven team, right? They're, and that's why when you look at them, you know, we, we've laughed about it here, but they every year, it seems, they're one of the leaders in overall draft selections. They like to trade down, work the draft, pick up a lot of different picks, and have a lot of darts to throw every single spring. This one is certainly no exception to that. But and everyone thinks when we talk about, you know, all oh, this is an analytically driven team that it's all about test scores and how they test from an athletic standpoint. That's not always the case. It's also about, you know, what they do from a production standpoint as well. And there are a lot of other factors that get into it. It's not just about the athletic testing, but you know, you look at the, a lot of these guys, a lot of them were very, very productive. James Lynch, very productive. Troy Dye, very productive. Uh, Kenny Willekes, very productive. Brian Cole, limited years of starter, productive. Nate Stanley was pretty productive. Uh, Ezra Cleveland, Great athlete, Jeff Gladney, extremely productive. Justin Jefferson, extremely productive. So catching <laughs> some themes here uh, with some of these guys that uh, were selected. But um, no, And Fran, was- if you could have said, pick me an offense for Nate Stanley, I would have pounded the table, pounded through the table to say, get this guy with Kubiak. He could be the next Matt Schaub. There's a perfect fit of style right there. Well, I, to me, it's like I wrote down C.J. Beathard uh, while watching him, and uh, you know C.J. Beathard goes to Shanahan, who comes from that, you know, obviously that same family. From you a, can't uh, pick the Iowa quarterback that reminds you of the other Iowa quarterback. That's just I, the low hanging fruit. Not, there. I know it's low hanging fruit, but it made sense. <laughs> uh, when you talk about lack of anticipation and the accuracy being a little bit up and down. He reminded me of yep. C.J. Beathard. Um, all right, let's go to uh, the UDFA sleeper. We talked a lot about a lot of guys they've taken. Um, for me, uh, my UDFA sleeper for this team was the corner Neville Clark. Um, you know, while we have talked about, uh, who are they like those, those the smaller corners, the competitive feisty guys, they also still do kind of bring in some guys with size and Clark, uh, you know, some people view him is he a big corner or does he have the ability to slide into safety? I guess we'll find out, uh, you know, when he competes later this summer, but, uh, Neville Clark to me was the name that stood out, uh, from the, the undrafted list for that group, for that group. Yeah. The player that I have, I think in, if he was drafted the year before, he might be a third or a fourth round pick. I was shocked that he fell completely out of the draft. And that's slot receiver Courtney Davis at yeah. Texas A&M, who I thought was a day three version of Justin Jefferson. They really look identical Whoa. and what I call a tall slot receiver. So slot receivers are kind of changing. It's really not the 
Wes Welkers and Brandon Stokely's anymore. You could be taller. You could be upright. You could be Justin Jefferson or Courtney Davis. And he was a really intriguing player. Sharp, sudden routes, really good adjustments. The pluck passes behind them. All sorts of accuracy issues with Kellen Mond down there at Texas A&M. Not really the home run hitter that Justin Jefferson was. That's kind of the concern. Only two catches over 25 yards uh, this past season. He's quick. He's fast. Doesn't really have that play strength to break the tackles. But, man, he can get himself open. Watch his game against Clemson this past year. Got himself open against Kayvon Wallace, a really good cover safety for Clemson on third down. Knows how to move the chains. And I just think getting Justin Jefferson and Courtney Davis in the same draft class. I mean, I know he's undrafted, but essentially it's the same draft class here. Man, that's just a uh, – That's a great mix to add to your receiver group already with Adam Thielen and BC Johnson and adding KJ Osborne in the fifth round. Really interesting mix of players there for uh, Kirk Cousins. All right, let's move on to uh, the Green Bay Packers here. And Ben, let's let's you know adjust in your seat, get ready, you know, drink some water, whatever you got to do. I know a lot of people want to get your thoughts here uh, on the Green Bay Packers. Uh, We'll run through their selections real quick. First round, uh, they trade up for quarterback Jordan Love from Utah State. Second round, they take running back. A.J. Dillon from Boston College. Round three, they take the tight end, Josiah DeGuara from Cincinnati. Fifth round, linebacker Kamal Martin from Minnesota. Uh, we've dealt with an injury this year, but a uh, very highly regarded player. Sixth round, you got three players here. you got the guard, John Runyon from Michigan, guy who can play really any position along the offensive line. Uh, Jake Hansen, the longtime center for the Oregon Ducks. Simon Stepaniak, the guard from Indiana. And then two seventh-round picks, Defensive back Vernon Scott, kind of a, a corner safety hybrid from TCU. And then in the seventh round as well, Jonathan Garvin, the underclassman pass rusher from the U. So, Jordan Love, big discussion here. I know a lot's been written, a lot's been said, a lot's been talked about, a lot's been debated. Uh, I want to get your thoughts here. Why was Jordan Love the pick here for the Green Bay Packers? Well, it seems to be a philosophical approach to the Packers to, you know, also look to the long-term future, you know, just in – forced to kind of spite the short-term future and potentially adding more parts that can contribute in 2020 around Aaron Rodgers. You're a team that went 13 and three to the NFC championship game with a first year head coach. People thought they were ready to tool. And I think when they look to the left and to the right of other teams and to see what teams like the chiefs do every off season, the past two years or the 49ers, I think they look at themselves like their competitive roster a competitive team, they want to retool like those other competitive teams. And I think looking at a player like Jordan Love that potentially won't be on the field or look to contribute for two, three, four years, considering Aaron Rodgers' age and contract situation, it just kind of left a lot of Packers fans disappointed to not add more immediate talent or immediate impact player for 2020 thinking that this is a competitive team to make another run. Now, that may not be the way Brian Gutekunst in the front office feel about the current roster. They won a lot of close games. There's some people in the analytics community that think those close one-score games really mean that you're going to have kind of a bounce-back year with your record, and you won't always have uh, the luxury of coming out on top of those games. So there's some people that think the Packers were a bit of an overachieving team last year. If that's how the front office feels and maybe they don't think Aaron Rodgers has two or three years left in him, it's time to look to the future. And, you know, this was the same kind of age that they looked for Aaron Rodgers when they still had Brett Favre, but 
it was a much different scenario back then. Favre was kind of toying with retirement every offseason, and they really had to look to the future. And Aaron Rodgers was in consideration of being the number one pick in that draft with Alex Smith. Jordan Love is not considered to be the number one pick with Joe Burrow. So I think him them going up and getting him, in addition to not addressing more current and prevalent needs, I think just frustrated some Packer fans. But sticking to the formula of having a franchise quarterback will typically make you a contending team first and foremost. And to go from Brett Favre to Aaron Rodgers and then to also address the long-term future with another first-round quarterback, it's a wait and see at this point. And the last time they did it, it seemed to work out. So let's let's see where the where the cards fall here, friend. To me, to me, like that would be my response to to the Packers fans. Is like, all right, well, you know, because I, I remember when they took Aaron Rodgers. I was sitting on my couch and I was shocked, just like everybody else was, that oh, that you know, they they took a quarterback. You know, when uh, they've got Brett Favre already, um, and you mentioned that Aaron Rodgers is the same age that Brett Favre was uh, for that selection. But I think when you look, uh, you know, look, obviously they view. Jordan Love as that level of prospect, right? Or else they're not moving up to make that pick. My question, though, for those Packers fans would be this. Are you happy now, 10, you know, 20 years later, you know, it wasn't 20 years, but 15 years later, uh, that the Packers decided to pick Aaron Rodgers? Like, Hmm. instead of drafting a wide receiver for Brett Favre or an offensive lineman to protect Brett Favre or a guy to get up sacks, you know, when when they've got a lead with Brett Favre, uh, to me, like, you're happy. You're annoyed now, but you know, five six <laughs> years from now, let's see. Let's see, it works out. Now, that takes them apart. The evaluation of Jordan Love. Obviously, they're very high on him, and they view that they can work with him. I love the idea of Jordan Love going into a scheme like that. I like the idea of Jordan Love going into a situation like that where he doesn't have to play right away. Um, but also, Aaron Rodgers has been. He's also been bagged up <clears throat> a couple times over the last few years as well. So, um, yeah, addressing the backup and the depth, I think, is important. Yeah. Injury, an injury to the starting quarterback does not mean the season is lost. And I think yep. this is the perfect platform to talk about that because we saw what Nick Foles did behind Carson Wentz. And that same season, Brett Hundley could not hold the ship up for Aaron Rodgers and they weren't a competitive team. With your starting quarterback going down, you have to prepare accordingly. And you need depth and depth will be tested. And occasionally it's tested at the quarterback position. You better be ready. The interesting thing with the Aaron Rodgers-Brett Favre situation is they took Aaron Rodgers in 2005. You know the last time the Packers finished last in the NFC North? It was 2005. It was 2005, Fran. They were awful that year. and Mike Sherman got fired, and it was a big change into the guard, and that's kind of what happens when you have to address the long-term future, spiting the short-term future. You're not that competitive in the short-term future. So it's interesting to see where the Packers will compete this year. The other thing is, how do they view the offense and what they need out of that quarterback position? And that's what Greg Cosell has really kind of harped about, saying there is some frustration with Matt LaFleur and the style of Aaron Rodgers and his unwillingness to let it loose, his unwillingness to play within structure, his propensity to play outside of structure and improvisationally. I thought that's where Jordan Love excelled the most at Utah State was getting outside the pocket, out of structure, using that big, loose arm, using his mobility, that big frame. If they want somebody to just be a pocket-passing robot and run the system, I just didn't think Jordan Love would be that guy for them, as opposed to maybe taking a Jake Fromm in the third, fourth, maybe fifth round to just run your offense for you. So I have a bit of a philosophical issue with the style of player for that offense. 
I had a third round grade on Jordan Love, Fran. I did not love his 2019 tape. I didn't love his decision making. I thought he took a lot of chances late into the flat, a lot of interceptions, very little talent around him. I think that was kind of the silver lining and the kind of excuse for him. And I just don't really know what to make of this pick right now, Fran, but I'm excited. He's a really intriguing player, and I'm going to just hope that they're padding that quarterback position for another 12 to 15 years in uh, green and gold. Let's get to uh, to day three here because I think there's plenty uh, that we can discuss. Obviously, a bunch of picks there on the third day. Who was your, uh, your favorite pick there for day three, for the day three standout for the Green Bay Packers? Well, I just love all these interior offensive linemen, whether it's Jake Hansen, Simon Stepniak from uh, Indiana, who's a nasty right guard, loves helping out his tackles there and cleaning up defensive ends when he's uncovered. But I really like the John Runyon pick. And I think that that just feels like a NFC North that feels like a cold weather type of Packers pick right there coming from the University of Michigan and obviously his dad, uh, Big John Runyon, having played in the league before. This guy's got ton of, tons of experience there up at the University of Michigan. He's played a lot of good ball at left tackle for them. Probably going to project to be a guard at the next level. But adding those three players in the interior offensive line that could go compete with, you know, Billy Turner at right guard and young Elton Jenkins. We'll see what Corey Lindsley has left at center there. I just think that's great depth and talent and competition to add to your offensive line room. Yeah, Jake Hansen to me was the guy that, uh, you know, limited proven uh, scheme versatility, only really been a center for the Oregon Ducks, but four-year starter, athletic kid. I think he's got some traits that work well in that level of system. When you talk about the stretch run game and a lot of different things that they do uh, in the screen game as well. Uh, Jake Hansen is a guy that excites me. And then John Runyon as well, you know, he, for a different reason, with his proven versatility, he's a guy that can line up at a number of different spots. He's been a tackle and guard, but a lot of people feel his best position could be center down the road. So uh, to me, I, I agree with you. I, I like some of those guys that he took in the interior uh, offensive line. Let's go over the top here. Some just big takeaways. Some of the things that I've seen uh, just kind of studying Brian, Brian Gutekunst and uh, knowing that the, the tree that he comes from, right? He comes from Ron Wolf. He comes from Ted Thompson, you know, and really under those two guys, the Packers were a big height, weight, speed team, and that has continued. They've got their prototypes. Uh, they trend towards bigger guys. They don't take bad athletes. They don't take slow guys. They want guys that, you know, have that size, the movement skills to be able to stand out in the NFL. Um, they're not scared off by guys with a lack of experience or a lack of production. If they have those traits, they'll take chances. And, you know, a big example of that obviously was last year, 2019, when they took Rashawn Gary at, you know, what was it, 12th overall. Um, but there are plenty of examples when you go to day three of drafts where they've got guys that, you know, maybe they, they didn't put up big numbers, but you might, and you might say like, who's Vernon Scott, or, you know, you go back and just look at day three of, you know, their drafts over the last couple of years littered with players that just, you know, they're traits guys, they're coming in and they, and they can stand out uh, with their size and with their movement. Uh, and the other big standout too, with this team is they definitely trend towards bigger schools uh, under Brian Gutekind's 82% of their picks have come from the power five. So uh, when you talk about just, you know, trending towards those bigger programs, uh, the Green Bay Packers certainly one uh, that certainly believe in that uh, undrafted free agent to watch. Who's the name, Ben, that uh, you'll be watching here this summer for that team. There's a lot of intriguing players, in my opinion. They grabbed uh, the other number 10 at Ohio State, Tipicalea, the uh, TCU transfer is an interesting uh, athletic edge rusher there. And, um, I really like Patrick Taylor from the University of Memphis, big bulldozer type of back, and Daryl Stewart, the slot receiver at Michigan State. I know I'm stealing all these names from you, but the name I'm going to go with here, Fran, is Will Sunderland out of Troy. 
Ooh, okay. And people are thinking, ah, Troy, who is that? He was actually a four-star Oklahoma transfer. He's 6'2", 195. He's got long limbs. He's a ball hawk. He ran 4-4 at his pro day. Really good battle this past year with Omar Bayless down there at Arkansas State. Played Missouri this year, Nebraska last year. So he's played some Power 5 teams as well. Really interesting player. And I think this is what undrafted free agency is all about in the NFL. Finding talent, traits, where they may not be a lot of attention. And finding this kid from Troy, who's an Oklahoma transfer, I'm interested to see what he can do. I don't know a whole lot about him, but that type of backstory is what you do with undrafted free agency. So mine is going to be the, the corner from Florida State, Stanford Samuels. You know, you talk about height, weight, speed. He didn't quite run as well as people expected him to uh, out in Indianapolis. The thought is that he would have improved on that had, ta- had they had a pro day down in Tallahassee. But uh, certainly with his size, his wingspan, Kind of fits that mold. Okay, kid come from a power five school, underclassman. Um, you know, didn't have, didn't play a ton of football uh, for the Seminoles, but um, you know, I think he kind of fits that trend. Of what we were talking about earlier uh, with some of the things that we've noticed there. From he's the got conference. a huge wingspan, Fran, yeah. and he obviously has the pedigree with his dad yep. being Stanford Samuels as well. But he just ran terribly. But he's got eight picks, sixteen PBUs. He's got yep. long limbs as well. He's got the ball skills. Let's see what happens, you know, if he can get his hands on receivers. He just doesn't have the straight line speed running 40s. Who was that other corner that Florida State had a couple years ago that uh, was big and long and was really productive? I think it was productive the year before he came out. and didn't so Levante play. Taylor? No, like he was – I mean, he was like a 6'3 corner too. He played on the right side. Uh, this was like two years ago. People thought – Jalen oh, Ramsey? No, I think it was at, right after Jalen Ramsey. He went undrafted too because he was. People thought he was going to be like one of the better corners in his draft, and he ended up going undrafted. This is going to really bother me. Um, of who this kid was, this is great podcasting. Well, Monte Taylor was the one that moved to safety, right? Right, he was the one who, and he went. He Hold was on, in this, he was in this year's draft. Um, but he, he, when you're talking about kids that come from this level of program, uh, look, he's he's one of those guys that when you're talking about his traits and his ball skills, the production that he was able to put up over the course of his career. I think that uh, – No, you're thinking of Tavares McFadden. I am thinking of Tavares McFadden. Yeah, very good. I'll good tell goal. you what. The year before he came out, Fran, yes. he had six interceptions yep. all on fades, yep. and they were perfect technique. Like literally <laughs> feel, lean, head around, find the ball, ball skills, finish the play. I thought this kid was a first-round corner all day long. Really physical two-handed jam. If you want any more notes on this corner that came out three years ago, I can keep going. What, for what it. did he run? What did he run? Like four, <laughs> four, eight, three, or something? Yeah, it's something. Yeah, like five, nine. Yeah. Okay. So uh, let's go to the, here to the Chicago Bears. Um, run through a little bit different here than what, what we were talking about uh, with like the Minnesota Vikings. Not a ton of picks for the Bears, but uh, they moved down a couple times and then picked up a couple extra selections for them. Second round, they took Cole Komet, the tight end from Notre Dame. It's another second round pick. They take the corner Jalen Johnson from Utah, a guy that I like. Uh, a couple of fifth round picks here Travis Gibson the pass rusher from Tulsa Kendall Vildor the corner from Georgia Southern and then Daryl Mooney the wide receiver from Tulane a speedster and then a couple seventh round picks here two guards that went back to back 226 and 227 that I had never heard of and I knew nothing about uh the guard Arlington Hambright from Colorado and then Lachavius Simmons from Tennessee State uh let's go to Cole Komet Jalen Johnson here I'll let you make your pick who why do you think those guys were the pick well, uh, they need to make some good picks. They had no first-round pick, no third-round pick, no fourth-round pick. They only made six picks. I just looked at the list uh, in preparing for this podcast. I'm, like, looking over my shoulder, like, where are the rest of the names here? <laughs> uh, but they only had six picks, uh, trading some of those picks a couple years ago for Trubisky and some other uh, comings and goings with the roster. Coil, but, Coil Mac, yep. 
yeah, Khalil Mack as well, which uh, that seemed to be a better uh, transaction. But Cole Met, uh, one of the bigger, more physical, traditional tight ends in this draft. He's every bit a 6'5", 260. He's a good-looking kid, Fran. He looks every bit what you want as a traditional put-your-hand-in-the-turf wide tight end in the NFL great tight end off a of play action. He's going to block for you. He's going to move some defensive ends. He's going to get up on safeties and linebackers. Not a whole lot of juice, you know, in the past game, but yeah. if you want him to be a traditional tight end and you just want to get him open off a of play action, he can catch the ball. He's kind of a big lumbering guy after the catch, but he's tough to bring down in that size. He's a really big kid. And if they're just looking for a more complimentative piece, I know they kind of moved on with Trey Burton and they brought in Jimmy Graham, but if they need that real traditional wide tight in for Matt Nagy's offense, that's what Cole Nett can do. And he's a really, really good-looking player. Obviously, they were hoping Adam Shaheen would be that a couple years ago, and they took him in the second round uh, out of Ashland University. To me, I'll talk about Jalen Johnson here. They, they picked in the second round. It's funny, you know, Ben, I, when I wrote my comp up for Jalen Johnson, uh, my comp was Prince of Mukamara. And he looks like he's going to take Prince of Mukamara's job here in Chicago. Mukamara is still on the free agent market. Uh, the Chicago was hurting for some corner help. Johnson could step in and be a starter uh, right off the bat. So to me, uh, makes a lot of sense. I think he's got that skill set that'll fit well uh, in that scheme there uh, in Chicago. So uh, let's go to a day three standout. Favorite pick from day three. I'll let you uh, kick things off. By any chance, can you just give me 30 seconds? I'll give you 30 seconds, and I'll, I'll talk. Because my to me, uh, I'll go with the wide receiver, Daryl Mooney, the, the kid from Tulane. This is a team that needed speed. They needed just a little bit more juice on offense. You, know, you talk about Tariq Cohen, the guys they've got on the offensive side of the ball. Uh, they've got some juice, but I think they wanted a little bit more speed, a little bit more lightning in the bottle, uh, some more rocket to the way that they play. Um, but to me, I think when you look at Daryl Mooney, uh, he certainly offers – some of that juice. Uh, this is a guy that you know was a big play weapon throughout the course of his career uh, with Tulane. Uh, he goes to the combine. He kind of matches that. He runs in the four fours. Um, you know, he, honestly, he was one of the best best wide speed receivers in this class that the Eagles didn't take because they took uh, John Hightower. They took Quez Watkins. Uh, Mooney was the guy I would put kind of in that same tier uh, in terms of speed threats there on day three. Uh, and the Bears were able to come away with him in the fifth round. Yeah, that was kind of my pick as well. I really like uh, Mooney. He's a really fast receiver. He ran 4.38 at the combine, averaged 16.7 yards per catch for Ann on 150 catches in his career. Yep. This is a guy that had the production down the field in a high volume offense. Really, really explosive player. And I think that's a guy that Matt Nagy is going to be able to find uh, some opportunities down the field for. Some names I had in his conversation John Brown, Travis Benjamin, JJ Nelson. Ted Ginn, I think that's what you're getting with Darnell Mooney. Yeah. Uh, to me, you're looking at like over-the-top trends for the Chicago Bears. One, the biggest one to me, you know, this is a team that likes to draft for traits, you know, kind of like what we were talking about just with Green Bay. You know, they don't take a lot of bad athletes. That's one thing that stands out. But, but beyond everything else, they like the small school guys, man. I mean, 15 of 39 picks under Ryan Pace. 15 of 39. That's like just, a, just short of half have come outside the Power Five. Without question, the highest of any club that I've charted uh, over the last few months. Yeah, to me, I, when you look at the way the guys they've taken, a lot of guys, not just from Group of Five, but FCS, Division Two, they dive in. They do not care what that what logo is on the side of that helmet. 
they care about what you're putting on film. So uh, the small school guys, you know, and they took a few more uh, in this class. Talk about Travis Gibson and Kendall Vildor. Uh, we talk about Darnell Mooney, all coming outside of the Power Five. Latavius Simmons coming from the FCS level at Tennessee State. Uh, that is certainly one of the hallmarks there for Ryan Pace and the Chicago Bears. Uh, let's go to a UDFA sleeper, a name to watch for this summer. To me, I'm going to go with the linebacker from FAU, Rashad Smith. Feisty player, fun player to watch. He got hurt midway through this past season, so missed the back half of his senior campaign. But I, I liked him on film. He, he was a fun player to watch. I don't know if you had a chance to study him, but uh, was productive over the course of his career before the injury. No, I never dug into his tape too deep there, Fran, but I'm going to go with this running back, Artavis Pierce, out of Oregon State. I saw him in person against Ohio State in 2017. He had a huge game, really uh, ruffled Ohio State's feathers there in the opening week. You talked about him on the podcast after, I remember. I believe so. He had 11 carries for 168 yards, two touchdowns, a couple long runs, three receptions for 41 yards. I was impressed. It was a season opener. I didn't know who this kid was. But the past two years, he got absolutely stuck behind a stud true freshman in Jamar Jefferson. So when you're looking at him as a senior and despite not having huge totals, only 873 yards rushing this past year, I challenge everybody, go watch Jamar Jefferson's tape at Oregon State. Really exciting young running back up there. Artavis Pierce just lost some carries to the exciting young running back behind him. But he's a guy that can maybe squeak onto the roster through returning, maybe being a third down back next to Tariq Cohen and David Montgomery. I think that's kind of open season behind those two. Yeah, that's a, that's a really good point. Um, let's, do, let's go over to the AFC now. We'll talk about the AFC North and the team that had the first overall pick uh, in every round. But most notably the the first round of this draft and that's quarterback Joe Burrow was the one, one overall pick uh, in this draft. So they take Joe Burrow uh, in the first round, second round, they come back with Clemson wide receiver T Higgins, third round Wyoming linebacker, Logan Wilson, a guy that I really liked, uh, especially, you know, watching more and more of him down the stretch. Uh, Logan Wilson, really underrated player. There's a good value there in the third round, fourth round, they get another linebacker and Akeem Davis Gator round five, Khalid Kareem, the defensive end from Notre Dame. Round six, Hakeem Adeniji, the offensive lineman from Kansas, a guy that I think could play any line, uh, any spot along the offensive line. And then Marcus Bailey, the linebacker from Purdue. Quietly, very good draft here for the Cincinnati Bengals. And uh, you know, to me, I don't think we need to spend a ton of time here uh, talking about why Joe Burrow was the pick. We know, we know why Joe Burrow was the pick. He was the, he was the, the this, to me, the, the most well-rounded and the safest quarterback uh, of the of this group. Yeah, I mean, it's not a whole lot, whole lot much more to add to that. We all know what Joe Burrow did this past year, uh, really taking his play from 2018 to the next level with Joe Brady and that LSU offense. Heisman Trophy winner, national championship winner, first overall pick. If you don't have a quarterback, you better go get one. And the Andy Dalton era is kind of over in Cincinnati. They're moving on to Joe Burrow's time. And I just think mixing him with the second-round pick, T. Higgins, with A.J. Green, John Ross's speed, Auden Tate's size. A lot of interesting things uh, kind of churning there up in uh, Cincinnati. I think they're still probably a year or two away with their roster and turning things around. It's going to be rough for Joe Burrow this year. It's no secret. That's what Peyton Manning told him. He said, listen, they were the number one pick for a reason, and you're going to see it. And I just think that's kind of a fun, uh, low-pressure situation for Joe Burrow. Go sling it around this year, make some mistakes, and 2021, clean it up, and let's see if he can compete. 
that's why, like, you know, I think when you look at it, you look at that, that situation, it's like, all right, well, A.J. Green was hurt most of the year. You know, the left tackle, the first-round pick last year, Jonah Williams was out for the season. You hope that with what you brought in in free agency, you know, bringing back A.J. Green, uh, Joe Mixon, another year older, another, more, another year more experience. You hope that offensive line, they've got some young pieces there, can start to gel. Hopefully it's a little bit better than a team that finished with the first overall pick. That would be the hope there. Uh, for the Cincinnati Bengals. But uh, I agree with you. I, I really like what they did on day two. But let's talk about our day three standouts. To me, uh, I like their seventh-round pick, Marcus Bailey, man. Uh, to me, and I like what they did at the linebacker position in general. Uh, to me, if you're going to say, okay, we're going to come away with three linebackers on day two and day three, hard to come up with a better trifecta than Logan Wilson, Akeem Davis-Gaither, and Marcus Bailey, in my opinion. I, I think that's a really good threesome there uh, of linebackers. And Bailey, really instinctive, tough player better coverage player than you would think because uh, he's not an A-plus athlete. He's not a bad athlete, but he's not an A-plus athlete. The big thing is the, the, the knee injury history. He had one this year, had one a couple of years ago as well. I believe two separate knees. So, um, you know, when you talk about you know, his durability, that's going to be brought into, you know, into conversation. That's why he was a seventh-round pick and not a third-round pick but, or a second-round pick. But Those types uh, of players are always like pits in your stomach, though, Fran, because when they're healthy and on the field, like we were just talking about Hunter Bryant, couple minutes ago they were great they were productive they were solid but it's just the injury concerns and obviously two ACL tears is going to worry a lot of NFL scouts and uh talent evaluators but when this guy was healthy for Purdue exciting exciting linebacker especially in the past game and in coverage six career interceptions I think you showed me a couple of his plays against Ohio State over the summer from the previous year sniffing out screens and making a couple of nice plays uh, on the receivers on the outside, but he's got really good instincts. And I just thought when he was on the field, he just looked apart and was one of the best defenders for uh, the Purdue Boilermakers. But I'm no doctor. The ACL tears are going to be concerned, and that's pretty much what made him uh, drop in the draft. Well, and I don't want to get too deep into the over-the-top selections here, but this is a team that has shown that they're willing to take those chances on guys, right? I mean, Rodney Anderson last year out of Oklahoma. Carl Lawson fell to day three because of medical issues. There was concern about his shoulder. Uh, they took John Ross in the first round despite his medical issues uh, at the University of Washington. Um, so this is a team – there's more, but they, I mean, that's just a handful off the top of my head. Uh, this is a team that has shown – that they're willing to take those chances on those medical red flags. Uh, what's the, who's a day three guy uh, that gets your juices flowing here? A day three guy. That's Akeem Davis Gaither, Fran. I love this linebacker at App State. Yep, that's a linebacker at App State. And do not sleep on this Sun Belt, especially <laughs> in 2021, Fran. There's interesting players all over this. This is a productive player, good contributor in the run game and the pass game, good in coverage, can blitz was a second team all Sunbelt in 2018 and then absolutely meteoric rise this past year, turning himself into the Sunbelt Defensive Player of the Year. Interesting kind of backstory, just being a two-star prospect. I think he came out of high school at like 5'10", 170. He was a safety. He was lanky. He had no size and started to bulk up, but still had that athleticism. Played a lot in space and that kind of nickel Sam halfway player where you're kind of detached from the box. You're not really a true slot defender. You're not really a true linebacker. So he loves playing out in space. He makes a lot of plays out to the numbers. Will contribute in the run game. Good blitzer. That's exactly what you want on day three. And adding him with Logan Wilson and Marcus Bailey to go with their other vets of Jermaine Pratt and Jordan Evans there at linebacker already. It's a really interesting mix to uh, add in 2020. Yeah, and you know, we go over the top here for this team. Uh, you know, I mentioned that they're not afraid of red flags. Talk about from a medical standpoint, we know that you know they're willing to take some chances with guys uh, with off the field histories. 
but they, it's a big, you know, big school operation. They typically don't dive into the smaller ranks. A lot of history with the SEC going to uh, Cincinnati. You look at their history, um, you know, over the last decade or so. Uh, obviously, Marvin Lewis, the you know, the coaching staff. That's the big thing is with Cincinnati. The fans need to know Cincinnati. The way that they structure their front office personnel, the personnel side, the scouting staff is much different. It's a little bit more limited from what uh, other teams do. It's a smaller staff overall, so they put a lot on their coaches. It's a much heavier lift for the coaching staff from a draft season standpoint. So, uh, you know, when you look at the guys that they typically uh, prioritize, it's guys that their coaches got to see when they're out in the road for pro days and guys that they got to work with and got to get their hands on, you know, a lot of uh, history there uh, with their coaching staff being very involved with selections. They're a team that drafts for need. It's almost like they go into the draft every year with a list and just say, Check, 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 check. Like, this is what they need. Uh, but Cincinnati, uh, you know, look, this is a team that consistently, they've had, they've had the same front office structure for a long, long time. Uh, so there's some, you know, some trends that you can kind of pick up here uh, from the Cincinnati Bengals. Who's an undrafted free agent that you want to keep an eye on here? So I saw this kid in person this past year. I didn't know a whole lot about him, but follow, follow me here for a second, Fran. Okay. So Jamie Newman, quarterback, Wake Forest, transferred, grad transfer, University of Georgia, big, yep. exciting kid. He's 6'5", 220. But there's two receivers out there in Wake Forest that made him. Oh. And that's Sage Surratt and Scotty Washington. And Scotty Washington is 6'5", 220, is undrafted receiver. And kind of funny, I didn't realize in my comp section of his notes, who did I compare him to? Auden Tate. So Here you go. it's fun. It's kind of funny to see that teams have a type and they have a style. And just like Auden Tate, who are coming out of Florida state, big physical above the rim type of guy, the route tree, not going to sugarcoat it. It's pretty much a stop and go type of guy. You know, it's more of a linear plane, but he's big. He's every bit of six, five, two twenty. Uh, other names I wrote down were Devin Funches, Darunya Wilson from Mississippi state a couple of years ago, bug Howard out of North Carolina, oh, a couple nice of interesting name. names, uh, who's who over the past four or five years of big 6'5", 220-pound receivers. But even though Jamie Newman's heading over to the University of Georgia, Scotty Washington and Sage Sherratt did a lot of good work for him in that offense. Interesting. I'm going to go with uh, you know uh, Mitchell Wilcox, the tight end from USF. Uh, was highly rated coming into the season. No, oh, I didn't see him on the undrafted list. That's oh, a great pick. Oh, oh, I would have picked him. Well, you know, you got, you got, you got your Auden Tate 2.0. That's fine. Uh, you know, <laughs> when you look at Mitchell Wilcox, this is a guy that – He's not going to wow you from an athleticism standpoint. He's not going to wow you with his body, but uh, just a well-rounded player, physical player, competitive. He's a good blocker. He's a pretty good route runner. He, like he, he's he's going to. I think he's going to make it in the league. Uh, to me, like that's why I feel like he's a player that is going to uh, find a way to get. Like how different was he than uh, we'll say like even Thaddeus Moss? Like I, when you look about the Joe Burrow connection, like I think Mitchell Wilcox kind of similar in terms of the usage and one of the things that's that a great do. that's a great point there because that's all the same type of player thad moss josiah deguara mitchell yep. wilcox you're all h-backs you're 6'3 245 250 you're probably going to line up in the backfield just like mitchell wilcox did for south florida my issue with mitchell wilcox was just the drops occasionally you just have some clunky yeah. drops on him at eight in 2018 but he lined up in the backfield 113 times this past year. So he's definitely more of the move tight end, H-back type of role, uh, who I thought was a little bit like a Irv Smith coming out of Alabama last year. Oh, that's, a, that's a good call. Uh, all right, let's get to uh, the, the Cleveland Browns here, the other team in Ohio. that Another team I thought had a really good draft. We'll just run through their picks here real quick. Uh, they didn't have a ton of selections. They moved down a couple times and picked up some extra picks, but started things off in the first round with Alabama tackle Jedrick Wills. They go second round. 
LSU safety Grant Delpit. Go back to the SEC for their third pick, Jordan Elliott, the defensive tackle from Mizzou. They go back to the SEC again, LSU linebacker Jacob Phillips. So four picks in the in the first two days. All four guys comes from the SEC uh, with Andrew Berry in his first draft uh, as the general manager in Cleveland. Day three, they go with three players here. Harrison Bryant, who won the John Mackey Award uh, at FAU at tight end. Fifth round, they go with Washington center Nick Harris. Sixth round, they go Donovan Peoples-Jones, the talented wide receiver from the University of Michigan. But let's go back to Jedrick Wills. Uh, ben, why, why was Jedrick Wills the pick here at number 10? You know, I kept going back and forth on Jedrick Wills, Andrew Thomas, Makai Becton came on late for me for who I wanted with tackle one, but I ultimately settled with Jedrick Wills I did to too. be my tackle one. That was who I profiled in my Philadelphia Inquirer piece, uh, breaking down my top five tackles. But he was the right tackle at the University of Alabama, but he was protecting for a left-handed quarterback. So he's more than comfortable protecting that blind side for Tua Tungavailoa at Alabama. My comp for him is Trent Williams. And everything we've seen out of Trent Williams with the Washington Redskins, if that's what they're getting, uh, I think they'll be more than okay with that. It's interesting to see if he's going to be the left tackle or right tackle for the Cleveland Browns. They went and got Jack Conklin in free agency, traditional right tackle uh, from Tennessee and Michigan State. So it seems like Jedrick Wills will be plugged in at left tackle. I want to see uh, how he transitions to that left side. My one issue with him on tape, flies out of his stance, which can be a good thing and a bad thing. He oversets just a tad because of that. but he can recover and things are going to go wrong with offensive linemen. Can you recover? You're going to get your foot stepped on your hands, knocked down. You're going to take a bad step, whatever. Can you keep fighting? Can you recover? Can you open up your hips? Can you punch? And that's what he can do. And I just love his ability to recover. And I think that's what you need in Cleveland. They need more trench players. They need more foundational pillar players. There's a lot of glitz and glamor on this team with the quarterback and Nick Chubb and Odell Beckham and Jarvis Landry. If you don't have the nuts and bolts in the trenches, none of that's going to tick, Fran. And I think that this was a big nuts and bolts, meat and potato type of draft for the Browns. Dude, you, you compared him to Jedrick Wills. Like, and you know, you know me, like I, I don't make these comparisons lightly. He reminded, and I didn't write this down like as my official pro comparison or anything, but he reminded me of JP. Like he, he looks like Jason Peters a little bit with the way that he moves, the way that he's built. His he, body type, particularly. He yeah, kind of looks like JP. He yeah. does. And you make the Trent Williams comparison. I think, you know, you make that, that Trent Williams to Jason Peters comparison. That's an easy bridge to kind of cross. I, when I look at Jedrick Wills, he checked so many boxes on the field uh, for playing the offensive tackle spot. I, I'm, to me, like one of the bigger steals, one of the better value picks in round one. To me, in my eyes, the way that I view it, is Jedrick Wills going 10 overall. Like, I, I think he could be a far better value there uh, than people are, are giving Cleveland credit for. Um, really, really interesting pick there in the first round. Uh, let's go to our day three standout. They got a, you know, only three selections here to talk through, but three interesting players. Uh, who is your favorite pick for day three? Yeah, I was struggling here. I didn't know if I wanted to go with the receiver. I really like the center out of Washington, but I'm going to go tight end Harrison Bryant out of Florida Atlantic. Really intriguing tight end. I was shocked that he fell this far to the fourth round. Agreed. See other guys like uh, Josiah DeGuara get drafted over him, but Harrison Bryant was one of the more productive, prolific pass-catching tight ends. Really good size, speed, hands, yards after catch. And even though it was kind of a spread system down there at Florida Atlantic with Lane Kiffin, he got after it blocking when he was asked to. Think, and he I had think a lot of high school offensive lineman, if I remember yeah, right. Yeah, he had a lot of similar trajectory and a similar feel to Dallas Goddard. 
Yeah. And the once Dallas Goddard showed up to the Eagles, we're like, oh, is this kind of spread spread spacing tight end going to be able to block anybody? And we both looked at each other like, whoa, this kid could block. You didn't know so because he wasn't asked to. It doesn't mean he can't. Yeah. And I think that's kind of the Harrison Bryant thing. People think he's just such a pass-catching tight end. Uh, he can't survive in line, but he got after defensive ends. Occasionally, he was a lead blocker as a fullback. Seems to play with really good effort. It's a down tight end year, and it was really interesting to see the pecking order and the way, obviously, uh, Hunter Bryant from Washington fell, and there was no real cream of the crop at the top. Obviously, Colton Amet went in the second round to the Bears, but Harrison Bryant could end up being the most uh, productive of this group. If you had told me in December, we'll go to our day three standouts, if you had told me uh, in December that uh, Nick Harris was going to be a fifth-round pick I would have said, all right, well, what, what did he hurt? What did he end? What, what, did, what did he do in a workout? Like, how, how did he fall that far? Um, you know, he went down to the Senior Bowl, didn't have a great uh, week down there in Mobile, started slow, got a little bit better. To me, like, and there were comparisons to Jason Kelsey and, you know, everything that he does from an athleticism standpoint. I just watched this kid at the second level. I watch him at the third level. He plays with the right demeanor. I, I to me, and they're cross town, you know, the cross state rival, the Cincinnati Bengals, they took a kid like this in the first round a couple of years ago with Billy Price that didn't have the length, right? And his with his lack of length, defensive linemen get into him quickly. He struggles to have that anchor to be able to, to you talk about his recovery ability for an offensive lineman. Uh, Billy Price has struggled to recover. I worry about that a little bit with Harris, but man, he could just do a lot of different things for you uh, at the center spot with his athleticism. So interested to see how he's ultimately used if he does get plugged in as the starter at some point. Uh, I, I really like what Nick Harris brings to the table. I, I like that value there on day three. Uh, look, only one draft here for Andrew Berry. So when you talk about over the top, uh, any big takeaways, look, age definitely appears to be a, a big factor for this team. Five of seven picks were 21 years old, 21 year old rookies. Uh, the other two were 22. So you know, it seems like uh, no old players were selected by this team that age really matters. Also no bad athletes in the group. All guys uh, had plus movement skills. Three of the seven picks also were acquired via trade down. So I talked about how they traded down, uh, picked up some extra selections. Uh, Cleveland and Andrew Barry kind of work on the board a little bit there. Give me an undrafted guy. They had a, they had some options here, man. Who was an undrafted sleeper that you liked? You know, there's a couple inter- interesting players undrafted here with the Browns and a couple shockers as well. I didn't expect yeah. Benny LeMay to be an undrafted player. Nope. Really interesting uh, kind of scat back out of Charlotte. I like A.J. Green out of Oklahoma State. Really physical, tall corner, just didn't test particularly well. And I think once we get those, uh, excuse me, big 12 corners, you kind of think that, they're not, you know, press corners and they're not going to transition to the NFL game particularly well. But I thought he was one of the more productive, reliable corners in all of the country, particularly coming out of the Big 12 in Oklahoma State. And I was just shocked to see him fall uh, to be an undrafted free agent. But he just didn't test particularly well. But that's a really good player to add to that defensive back room. Two of my three guys that I picked. Who Can you guess who the third one was? Do you have the, do you have the list in front of you? I do, but I'm just trying to think. The other name I had written down was Troy Brown out of Colorado, that kind yep, of slot receiver, so, yeah. another kind of lanky upright slot receiver. But I would have, I would have picked Benny LeMay. Yeah, I would have, I would pick Benny LeMay as well. He'd be my first name. I thought he was a draftable player. Certainly has that ability to fit in. Kind of a poor man's Clyde Edward Hilaire. I thought he kind of the, the name I wrote down was Zach Stacy. Uh, I don't know if you remember him coming out of Vanderbilt a few years oh, ago yeah. with the Rams. Um, the other name though is Alex Taylor, the tackle from South Carolina State. Uh, you're yep. talking about a mammoth offensive lineman, basketball background, light feet, got better as the week went on down in Mobile at the Senior Bowl. 
getting him as an undrafted free agent really could get. I, I thought Cleveland did a really good job. They collected a lot of talent. Uh, but Fran, Benny LeMay, I got to let everybody know, he had two touchdowns this past year on halfback verticals going right down the seam. Three catches total, but two went for touchdowns. Wicked angle routes. He's a really fun running back. Three He's catches short. all year? No, three catches on the halfback seam. Oh, verticals. okay, gotcha, gotcha. Two gotcha, of gotcha. them for touchdowns. And if yeah. any of you guys know, uh, that's kind of a, a play crush of mine and friends there. Yeah, no, I mean, you're that's to me, it's a man after your own heart. Uh, with that skill set. <laughs> All right, let's go to the Baltimore Ravens here. We'll run through their picks. Uh, first round, they go linebacker Patrick Queen, their first ever selection from LSU, uh, with Patrick Queen. Second round, uh, JK Dobbins, the running back from Ohio State. Round three, uh, they had four picks in the third round in true Ozzie Newsome fashion. They took a bunch of guys here in the back half of day two. Justin Matabike, the defensive tackle from Texas A&M. They stay in the state of Texas here for Devin Duvernay, the wide receiver, the speedster from the University of Texas from the Longhorns, another Ohio State player, linebacker Malik Harrison, and then their fourth third-round pick, Tyree Phillips, the offensive guard, big physical kid who's down at the Senior Bowl. They took another one of those guys in Ben Bredesen from Michigan to start things off on day three. Two more day three picks here. Broderick Washington, the nose tackle uh, from Texas Tech, and then James Prochet, the ultra-productive player, the slot receiver, from SMU, and then lastly, Geno Stone, the safety from Iowa. So let's go back to Patrick Queen. What was, why was this? Uh, why was this guy the pick? Well, in your mind, why was Patrick Queen the selection here for the Baltimore Ravens? I love this draft for him. Every pick, I just kind of like threw my hands like, oh, they got Prochet. Oh, they got Geno Stone late. Oh, they got Patrick Queen. Oh, they got J.K. Dobbins too. And really great draft there by Ozzie Newsom and John Harbaugh. But Patrick Queen, he was our SEC uh, sleeper back in August there. Didn't get a whole lot of playing time behind Devin White in 2018, but came on strong in 2019, taking LSU all the way to the national championship game and winning it. And he really ended up being a quarterback of that defense. I think yep. people add a Grant Delpit to maybe be that guy or Clavion Jason or even the young Derek Stingley on the outside. But that was Patrick Queen's defense in two, uh, 2019. I thought he showed... Uh, the ability to contribute in every phase of playing defense, whether it's making plays out to the sideline, instincts against the screen game and defending running backs out of the backfield, really, really tough, especially in the run game and shooting gaps. And he's a really good blitzer. All you have to do is put on that Clemson game, Fran, and he'll show you everything you need to know about what Patrick Queen uh, can provide for your defense. Yep. So to me, like, I think when you look at this and we're, we're going to talk about uh, some of the trends and over the top, but you know, Eric DaCosta steps in as the general manager. This is his second year uh, was the right-hand man for Ozzie Newsom for so long. Ozzie Newsom's still there in the building as an executive. Um, but Eric DaCosta, when he joked after the pick, he said, yeah, Ozzy, uh, you know, went to the bathroom. He was out of the room. He was gone. He was he wasn't on the Zoom call when we made the pick there <laughs> for Patrick Queen. Uh, but you know, you look at the, his level of athleticism. They they had a need there uh, at the linebacker spot. Made a lot of sense there. A lot of people pegged Kenneth Murray uh, to this team. The Chargers had made that move up to take Kenneth Murray, but uh, I think they were pretty happy to get Patrick Queen into the building there. Um, let's go into day three standout. A couple picks here. Who who was your day three pick for the Ravens? Sorry, I was, trying, I was trying to decide who I wanted to go with here. I really wanted to talk about Ben Bredesen, but I think we got to talk about James Prochet here, Fran. This receiver group was so deep, I thought he was going to end up squeaking an undrafted free agency. Somehow he didn't. Yeah. Played all over the place at SMU. 
He was XZ slot receiver. He's from DeSoto High School in Texas. Played with uh, Lavishka Chenault and AJ Green over at uh, Oklahoma State. Productive player this past year and last year. Thousand yards both years. Over uh, was it twenty or thirty touchdowns in his career. Crazy. Really, really good hands and competitive at the catch point, despite only having a five ten hundred and ninety three pound frame. He'll go up and compete. He'll make adjustments. He'll make acrobatic catches. Really good releases. Sharp route runner. Other than being 5'10 and 193 and a little undersized, Fran, I don't know what else you need from this kid. And there's always undersized receivers that I fall in love with. He reminded me so much of Sterling Shepard out of Oklahoma. Yep. Undersized, yep. but won all over the field in every phase of the field. I was just impressed. There's a really good chance he could squeak himself out of the draft for just from being a little bit small and being at SMU and not having a 40 at the combine. But he's a really fun player, friend. So my, I, that's a beautiful transition into you know some of my over the top takeaways here. I talk about Eric DaCosta. You know, one of the things I've seen over the last couple of years, they're not scared off by guys that don't test well or if they're you know lack of experience or um, or you know if they uh, you know they don't look if they don't look the part if they don't have the body type. If they are experienced, if they are productive, okay, look at some of the guys that kind of fit this bill, right? James Prochet, just named one. Jalen Ferguson did not, that was historically bad as a tester last year, but was the all-time NCAA sack leader from Louisiana Tech. Orlando Brown, historically bad combine workout, but, you know, was a longtime starter for the Sooners and, you know, was a, a guy, obviously a legacy player there for the Ravens. Amon Biggie Marshall uh, from the, the corner from USC. Didn't run well, you know. What, oh, you know, is he big enough? You know, what? It, really, really productive. Had great production on the ball throughout the course of his career. So, a little bit of a trend there. If you have guys that, you know, maybe they don't test well, but if they put up big numbers and they show show that they can get it done on the football field, a team that you know, the Ravens certainly one of those teams uh, that could pluck them. But one of the other, a couple, two other trends here from Eric DaCosta. Eighteen picks so far in two drafts. Sixteen of eighteen. Uh, have come from the Power Five. Huge, wow. huge, huge preference towards Power Five players. So that's one thing uh, certainly to keep an eye on. And then um, this is a team that if you go back and you look at, you know, Ozzie Newsome, especially over the last decade or so, a lot of seniors, you know, they're not afraid to take the older guys. You know, you go Dennis Pitta, you go to uh, Hayden Hurst, right, just a couple of years ago, the guy they took ahead of Lamar Jackson, uh, a 26-year-old tight end uh, out of South Carolina, right? So the team that previously was not afraid of the older guys, over the last couple of years, they have definitely trended younger. 13 of 18 guys have been at least 22 years old, if not 21 or 20. Uh, you know, certainly Patrick Queen uh, fits that mold. But, uh, you know, you talk about uh, a little bit of a changing the guard in Eric DaCosta. What are some of the things that he would put a little bit of his own stamp on? Not only is he, are they taking LSU players now, but uh, they're taking uh, some, uh, you know, guys that are a little bit younger as well with, you know, with the arrow still pointing up. Uh, so a little bit of interesting takeaway there uh, from what, looking at the Baltimore Ravens over the last couple of years. Let's get a uh, UDFA sleeper. Who's the guy that you're going to watch this summer? Well, as much as I really just want to talk about Ben Bredesen, this is a really interesting story. For him. He's got 3,200 snaps at left guard. <laughs> he was the Gatorade player of the year in Wisconsin as an offensive lineman. What is your tape that. look? What is your tape looking like to get Gatorade Player of the Year as an offensive lineman? You must just be murdering people. Well, no, this is this, this you're you're burying the lead here. If you're if it's Wisconsin, 
I need their Gatorade player player to be <laughs> offensive line. Like it can't be any other position except offensive line. Yeah, they're just running power and down block and double team. <laughs> That's and all they're doing. Way to state championships out there, but. Uh, the Ravens had some intriguing undrafted free agents. I really like Jacob Breeland out of Oregon. He probably would have been a mid-round pick despite the injury this past year, catching passes for Justin Herbert. Nigel Warrior, I really like him, Fran. He was a high, high recruit at the University of Tennessee. A lot of people had him as a five-star, really dysfunctional team the past two and three years at Tennessee. But this kid's got speed, athleticism, physicality, coverage skills. At the very, very, very least, I think he's going to be a four-core special teams captain for you down the road here. And I think that's what you want to do in undrafted. And I also like this Tyson Williams kid, BYU running back, who's a South Carolina transfer. A couple of intriguing players here undrafted, but I absolutely love their true draft class. Yeah, it's uh, Jake Brilliant was the guy for me that – um, you know, I think he's got some versatility. Obviously, he had that injury midway through his senior year, so uh, missed the pre-draft process. But uh, I think they got a little bit of a steal there with Jake Brilliant. We'll see if he's able to make that roster. Uh, last team here, Pittsburgh Steelers. We're going to run through the picks. Not a ton of them. Second round, uh, Chase Claypool. Remember, they lost their first-round pick in the trade for Minka Fitzpatrick. So Minka Fitzpatrick was their first-round pick this year. Uh, but round two, they get the Notre Dame receiver, Chase Claypool. Round three, the Charlotte pass rusher, uh, Alex Highsmith. Round four, a couple of picks here. Maryland running back Anthony McFarland and Louisiana guard Kevin Dotson. Round six, they go with Maryland safety Antoine Brooks. And then Nebraska defensive tackle Carlos Davis wraps it up in round seven. So let's go to uh, Chase Claypool. Why was he the pick there to kick things off for the Steelers in round two? Well, first and foremost, he blew up the combine. And he was probably, him and Tristan Wirfs were probably 1 and 1A as far as uh, head turners at the combine. Eh, Maybe Isaiah Simmons and a couple of those guys late in the week too. But Chase Claypool with his size, his speed, his explosiveness. Didn't really see a lot of that on tape though. But I think showing that in shorts and a t-shirt, jumping 40 inches, running 4'4", 6'5", 230. Everybody thinks he's going to be a kind of tight end transition there for the Steelers yep. with that size. Um, really interesting to see how they view him, how they think he's going to excel at the next level, whether he can be an outside-the-numbers guy or maybe over the middle of the field. Reminded me a little bit of Riley Cooper, actually, watching right. him on yep. tape. And uh, he was a really good high-point receiver at the University of Florida. I distinctly remember Riley Cooper catching a uh, touchdown over Janoris Jenkins for the Philadelphia Eagles. And that was Chase Claypool too. High point guy, back shoulder guy, catch some stuff over the middle of the field and try to break some tackles. Um, really exciting player. I just don't really know exactly how we're going to use him at the next level yet. Yeah, I, you know, look, this is a team that's going into potential contract discussion here with Juju Smith-Schuster and some debates on how much they're willing to pay him and, and things like that. I feel like this pick would get – uh, would be getting a little bit more negative publicity if it weren't the Pittsburgh Steelers and their history of drafting the position, right? I, obviously, look, they've had their share of misses. They've had a couple misses over the years, you know, Lima Swede, uh, some other guys that kind of fit that bill, but a lot of hits, a lot of hits, the wide receiver position for the Pittsburgh Steelers. So for them to have that faith to take Chase Claypool in round two, a guy that has that versatility, can do some inside work as well as work outside the numbers, uh, makes some sense there. Uh, let's go to the day three standout. Your favorite pick here from day three. Well, I just I really like Anthony McFarlane at the University of Maryland, the math a Catholic. Uh, yeah, you liked him more than I did. Yeah, and I think there's a reason for that, Franz, because I saw him in person for some reason. I don't know. I feel like an echo right now. Saw him in 2018 against Ohio State. I just said the same story from Artavis Pierce <laughs> at Oregon State. But what Anthony McFarlane do? He went off against Ohio State, Fran. 21 carries. 
for 298, including an 81-yard run, a 75-yard run. He turned my head. He was immediately on my list and database after that game. If he had ran for 300, maybe we'd be talking. (laughs) Yeah, right. 298. I'm not sure what he did at the end of the game there. Actually pushed Ohio State all the way to overtime. Uh, Couldn't get the win, though. That's right. I love the the Matha connection. Obviously, our buddy Brian Westbrook's from the Matha as well. Injury this past year uh, and had to split some carries in the backfield as well. So didn't have the production he did in 2018. But I just think that's a good mix to go behind James Conner, behind Benny Snell. We kind of know what they are. Who can be that third down scat back out of the backfield? Is it going to be Jalen Samuels? Is it going to be Kareth White? I think it could be Anthony McFarlane, friend. How about, uh, you know, for me, I'm going to go with uh, Kevin Dotson, the guard from Louisiana. Uh, You know, Robert Hunt (laughs) certainly got, you know, a lot of the attention, ended up being a second-round pick. Um, But I think when you look at Kevin Dotson, was by far the biggest snub uh, of the combine. Was shocked that he was not invited to Indianapolis. To me, was the best player down at the Shrine Bowl. Uh, was rock solid from start to finish throughout the course of the week of practice. Uh, you know, but since he was not invited to the combine, he was behind the eight ball in terms of medical reports because of the you know obviously that everything was going on in the country after the combine. So the teams that were able to sneak him in for top thirty visits and were able to get their own medical reports. That was that kind of limited the pool for where he was ultimately going to get drafted. The Pittsburgh Steelers were one of those teams that were able to get him in for a top 30 visit on campus before they had to shut the facility down. So uh, he ends up being a pick there in round four. Really good value for them, uh, you know, for that for that squad. I think that he could have been a late day two selection uh, had it not been uh, for that situation. But uh, Kevin Dotson, to me, uh, was my day three standout. Uh, let's go to over the top some takeaways here from the Steelers. Look, this is a team – Mike Tomlin's been entrenched there for a long time. Kevin Colbert has been the GM for a long, long time. So, uh, you know, you're not, not only are you going to see, you know, the, the things that have been tried and true that have been consistent themes over the course of their tenures, but you're gonna see, also going to see how they've kind of evolved and how they've developed. And one of the things that I think when you talk about the evolution and how they view their team and player, uh, player development and player acquisition – I feel like this is a squad, you know, that a few years ago, we'll say seven, eight, nine, ten years ago, maybe athleticism was not very high on the pecking order for them in terms of, you know, how guys tested and things like that. But right around the time when they took Jarvis Jones, who was, you know, super productive, but did not test well at all in Indianapolis, they took him in the first round. He did not pan out. His level of athleticism was a big question. Now you look at their high picks, first round, second round, third round, since really that year, a lot of guys with high marks for their athleticism. So uh, when you look at Chase Claypool, you look at Alex Highsmith, both those guys tested very well. Chase Claypool tested off the charts for the wide receiver spot. You look really over the last few years, TJ Watt was a great, great tester. Uh, you know, they've, t- they've taken a ton of guys over the last few years um, that have kind of fit that bill that tested really, really well. And I feel like that's an area where you say, okay, this is a team that kind of changed their approach to the NFL draft. So something to kind of take and keep an eye on there. And then also in the same boat, they've talked a lot about versatility after drafts and press conferences over the last three, four, five years, guys that can do a lot of different things, wear different hats, do different things uh, for them, whether it's on offense or defense uh, versatility. I think that's important to Mike Tomlin and Kevin Colbert. So uh, those are my takeaways there for the Pittsburgh Steelers. We'll wrap this up, man. Well, one more thing, undrafted sleeper for this team. One more thing. Don't try to limit me here, Fran. I'm going with three guys. You would. Okay. All right. And the interesting thing with these three players, the Steelers might have roped in the most stars of any undrafted free agent class. And with star, I mean star rating coming out of high school. 
These are players that were high prospects, high recruits, with just absolute dysfunctional college careers. Could have been their own doing. Could have been coaching staff changes. Could have been some quarterback issues. But cornerback Trajan Bandy out of Miami, linebacker Leo Lewis out of Mississippi State, and John Houston Jr. out of USC, all four- and five-star rated players, depending on what service you're looking at, right. all top recruits. I'm looking here at Leo Lewis, number one inside linebacker in the country coming out a couple years ago. But tons of dysfunction in their college career. <clears throat> Excuse me. There's some uh, scouts and talent evaluators that believe very passionately about the high school star system rating because it's, it's based on what you did. And that some people feel that there's still untapped potential and talent and upside with those four and five star players that maybe didn't have the college career they expected or transferred or maybe lost a starting job or had it falling out with the coach. A lot of things happen in these college careers, but these are three players, particularly Trajan Bandy, Leo Lewis, John Houston Jr., playing at big schools, big recruits, just didn't have the college career I think they expected. Yeah, my, my pick was going to be Bandy, and he's got that inside-outside versatility uh, that they've talked about uh, on the back end in that secondary. But I thought you hit on, on a really good point there, something certainly to keep an eye on there with that Pittsburgh Steelers team. Well, Ben, another marathon here. We got through the, uh, the <laughs> NFC North and AFC, more, and AFC North. Great stuff. Uh, as always, we'll be back next week. I think we'll do the uh, the AFC West and NFC Net, NFC West here next week uh, on the show. So uh, for all of you guys at home, hope you enjoyed uh, our conversation to kick things off in Mr. Relevant. Hope you enjoyed this recap of the NFC North and the AFC North. We'll be back next week here on the Journey to the Draft podcast, driven by Triple A. Awesome stuff there from Ben. And obviously, look, we, a lot of teams, a lot of players we're trying to cover. So if you are a fan of some of those teams, hope you, hopefully you guys enjoyed uh, that content. If you're just a fan of team building, hopefully you, got, you gleaned some uh, information uh, from, some of those, uh, from some of those recaps from the NFC and AFC North. Again, we'll do the AFC and NFC West next week on the show. All right, uh, so we're going to get to our one question here. comes from Richard, left a five-star review on our Apple Podcast page. And he said, look, with emphasis on athleticism over production, talking about the Eagles uh, 2020, 20 NFL draft class. Can you comment on the role a diminished offseason will play on these guys? Thank you. And Richard, I think that's a great question. I'm really glad you asked it. You know, to me, I think that's where you, you talk about guys that uh, have that work ethic. And, you know, a lot of the things we talked about with some of these guys, we talked about it here on this show. We talked about it on Eagles Draft Central as the guys were being selected throughout the course of the weekend. The one theme that, you know, that we all noticed was, yeah, you know, we saw speed, we saw athleticism up and down the board on these guys, right? But we also saw guys that just handle their business away from the field. You know, Jalen Rager, we heard, uh, you know, from him with Dave Spadaro and how much, you know, what his, his personal training regimen is like. You talk about Jalen Hurts. I talked with Lincoln Riley and Nick Saban about this exact topic, right, about how he was going to attack, you know, trying to learn this Eagle scheme on a shortened schedule. We heard from Tyson Summers and Mel Tucker, right, the coaches for Davion Taylor, and they talked about how, uh, you know, right away he was the first guy in to meet with those guys when they were first got hired out in Boulder, and, you know, the, he wanted to to embrace learning the scheme and picking up what he needed to do to have success in that system. So I think when you look at these guys, and you could say the same on all those guys in day three as well, I think a lot of those coaches kind of painted that picture, right? We heard uh, you know, from Rod Carey uh, about Sean Bradley. We heard from uh, you know Eric Keesaw about John Hightower. We talked with all these coaches, and they all painted that picture about these players, that they're all going to come in and they're going to attack it from an off-the-field standpoint. And when you have... Guys that have those high-end physical traits with high-end intangibles, 
Again, I've said it before, now you're cooking with gas, right? Now you've got guys that have that ability. And not all these guys are going to hit, right? We know that. That's a fact of life. That's a fact of life in the NFL draft, in the NFL. Not all of these guys are going to make it, but you're increasing your odds when you've got guys not just with physical tools, but with all those intangibles that we talked about. So to me, that's going to be a big uh, play, a big, big part here. Obviously, look, the other big thing that the Eagles have in their favor, there's no change in systems, right? So while these rookies have to be able to learn, the vets are there. They're installed already. They've got the ability to help bring these guys along because they've been in this system for two, three, four, five years. So uh, that's going to certainly help play in the Eagles' favor as well. Again, we've talked about that as well. The uh, other three teams in the NFC East all new coaching staffs that are going to bring in new verbiage and try and install new systems on both sides of the ball, uh, some more than others, obviously, but that's going to be a big, you know, a big hill for those teams to climb because not only are the rookies behind the eight ball, but the vets are a little bit behind the eight ball compared to where they would normally be as well. So great question there from Richard. Again, the best way to support the show, go on to Apple Podcasts or Stitcher, leave us a rating, leave us a comment. Look, we've got a couple of episodes here coming up that I'd love to be able to fill some content with. So if you give us a good question, maybe we'll turn it into a a giant show topic and cover it on a whole show. So appreciate the support from all of you out there for here on the Journey of the Draft podcast driven by AAA. That being said, I think that'll do it. We'll see you here next week uh, on the show. Really, really excited about what we've got over the next few weeks. I'll just give you a little bit of a tease right now. We've got former NFL GM Mike Tannenbaum, current ESPN analyst. Guy's been in charge of two football teams in the AFC East, two teams that we talked about today. We're going to talk with him next week on the show. So we'll see you next time here on the Journey to the Draft podcast, driven by AAA.